a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. It's time for the Zero Limits Podcast, hosted by Australian veterans. Chatting with high-charging humans with hectic stories from around the world. We'll give you the motivation to take on whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go. All right, Zero Limits listeners, here we are back again. Uh, got a special guest on today. He probably can kick my ass. I'm a big boy, but I reckon he can still kick my ass. He served in the Royal Australian uh, Infantry, one of the shittier battalions, though, not from the 3rd Battalion. <laughs> and then uh, later on down the track, he... Oh, during that time throughout the military, he's getting into his fighting and then uh, branched off into the mixed martial arts down the track and ended up fighting in the UFC, which is quite a, quite a feat. But, mate, welcome to the show. Damien Brown, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Thanks yeah. for having me. Really appreciate you uh, coming on and giving us your time. Now you're a busy man. You're in you're in your car at the moment. Just as you said, mate, you're nonstop. You're nonstop, which is a good thing. Nonstop for all the right reasons, I like to think. You know, between work, family, work again. Clients, I like to give my time to to people, whether it's coffee or not. Um, it's not always paid, and fortunately, I can do that. So I'm always busy. I'm always doing something. Even I, I don't know, like everyone likes to sit in the sauna to relax these days, but I seem to sit in there to work until my phone gets too hot. Yeah, mate. Do do you think that comes from the military? Um, you know, it's funny. I had a conversation with someone uh, yesterday, and I was just talking about work and you know what what drives people and stuff like that. And I, I feel like you know, some people are driven by money and some people just, just work. They just, it just is just who, who they are, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, I, I, my first job, I was 12 years old. Um, I didn't technically work, so, um, but I said to my old man, look, I need a trailer for me bike so I can mow some lawns. And, you know, I was making like 150 to 300 bucks a week just mowing lawns. So I'd go and do one lawn every afternoon after my homework. Uh, just knock on doors. And obviously... Um, without giving me age away, which I'm just about to do. That was 26 years ago, <laughs> which is wild. Um, but there's a good chance a 12-year-old wasn't going to get stolen then. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, I was 12, 12 and a half or something like that. And, uh, you know, he got one of his mates to build up a trailer for me, a whip a snipper on the side and a, a lawnmower in it, and um, just to hit a, hit a lawn for 20 bucks. 
and then I do it all day on the weekend. And that, that's just, you know, I, I just, besides playing footy, that's what I love to do. You know, I wasn't running around with my mates and causing a ruckus. So I was, I was trying, trying to mow lawns and make cash. And, you know, I, I look back now and I, I don't even think I even cared about the money at the time. Like I probably did a little bit, but it was more just, I think I just worked, you know, and then, uh, there was always some kind of hustle. I was always trying to flip stuff off at school or um, anything really. And so I think I just, I'm just always on. I think I'm just that kind of person. I, I like to think it probably came from my dad. Yeah. He didn't seem to stop either. Yeah, gotcha. And um, just touch, touching on your family, obviously growing up, you grew, you were born in uh, Albury. Now your old man, was he uh, just, just a typical regional country bloke? Uh, my dad was um, – Embarrassingly, he was a cook in the military. Oh, was he? Uh, Fitter and Turner, yeah, as they so call it. Yeah, so I had to, obviously, I joined infantry to save the name. Um, <laughs> no, um, he, was a, he was a cook in the military for uh, like six years or something like that. I think a couple of years after I was born, and then he got out. And I think, I think he did a, a few um, jobs as a cook um, in the early days after he got out. But then after that, he um, he was basically a truck driver, so he never drove locally. Really, he was always in a state. Um, you know, day trips to Sydney, day trips to Melbourne, um, and yeah, he pretty much drove trucks until I was I don't know, like 16, 17 years old or something like that. Yeah, right. Um, so he, he had into a few different things, and yeah, he opened a bakery with the support of a family friend, so I could spend more time at home, which didn't happen he just spent more time away from home he was just closer to home um because anyone that's ever been in the baking industry realizes that you work all night um and so yeah long story short um after that uh he he sort of uh he actually lost everything uh including his wife so my my uh my stepmom and um and so he sort of started another business um, when he when he remarried, and they're still going now, strong in Queensland actually. Yeah, right. um, I don't know. They must be they must be twenty twenty three years into business together. Yeah, yeah. Um, he does like caravan annexes and camper trailers and that. So he's he's always been like you know super motivated to. Uh, we might have a little. Yeah, gotcha now. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep, gotcha. Oh, you're on the car. One sec, one sec. Sorry, guys. You're right. You're My right. apologies. <laughs> Just getting out. Business here. Yeah, nice. My apologies, man. No, you're right, dude. Gotcha. Are we still recording? Yep, yep, yep. Okay, okay, sick. Sorry about that, guys. Let's get out of my car. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, pretty much. Oh, they've been going for for ages. They're in southeast Queensland as well, cracking on with, uh. You know, caravan axes and camper trailers and all your canvas needs. So he's always hustled, and I feel like I probably just got that from him, like I don't know, naturally or something like that. I was never forced to work or anything. I just chose to. I grew up knowing that people worked for what they wanted, and yeah. And so uh, here we are. So I just got to work. Actually, I really got. To work. Yeah, right. Far out. So this is your gym. Uh, it's got a perfect view out there. Yeah, nice. Um, so obviously, this is our. Uh, the gym behind me, the weights area. Yep, yep. And then um, we'll head down here. Here's a quick look all coming through. So, got me stuff working here. Yeah, Massive, nice. Uh, sort of um, 
mat area. So we got uh, 250 squares in that space. Uh, oh, shit. 140, 130, 140 squares of weights area, kind of like CrossFit setup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm um, heading upstairs here. But uh, just down this end, we got uh, we got some offices. We've got massage, physio. Yeah, nice. Whereabouts is this located in Brizzy? In Brendale. Yeah, gotcha. Um, and then I head into in my office here, which is sort of uh, we've doubled up. We've got a storeroom, so that's all our stock, obviously. Yeah, yeah. We have our own. We've got two gyms now, so we hold stock in one location for both. So. Keeps us busy. Yeah, nice, mate. Nice. So, mate, just going back to your uh, your, your childhood growing up, how, how did you go at school and uh, did you have any siblings? Uh, school was, uh, yeah, oh, huh. siblings. <laughs> <laughs> I've got lots of them, trust me. Uh, so we've got an extended family. So there's me and my sister um, and then uh, my, my parents are separated. So... Um, my my parents separated. My mum had a, um, two more girls, so I've got two sisters there, half-sisters. Uh, Dad met his uh, previous wife, uh, my stepmother, and um, she had three boys, and they had two kids together. Sorry, they had three kids together before she passed away. Uh, so, yeah, we had um, – I've got – I'm the oldest of ten. Oh, uh, shit. It me and my – me and my sister started it off, and, and here we are, the oldest of 10. So, um, you know, I always got the eldest privileges. Uh, so front seat in the car is always <laughs> nice. Um, no arguments, just got it. And the latest bedtime, which means I got to watch my show uninterrupted. Um, so, yeah, we it was a chaotic household. I think at any one time we had um, up to seven living under the one, wow. the one roof. Um, and my dad was usually away for like, you know, three weeks at a time driving trucks and yep. come home for a, a few a few days or a week. So um, with the privileges came responsibility. Uh, we lived for the, my early teens, we lived on a, a acreage. So that was my responsibility to maintain that. And, um, you know, the, the oldest, the oldest child or like oldest son sort of privileges came with responsibilities. So it's just part of it. Yeah, gotcha. And so, how'd you how'd you go at schooling, or how'd you go at schooling? Oh man, school was easy for me, and and it's it's funny. Uh, you got kids, and anyone that's got kids would have, uh, especially if they're over five, you would have been through this. But basically, um, but when you're looking at putting your kids in school, what, what I find is uh, I'm just going to find a little spot there for me. No, you're right, dude. Yeah, and I'm going to pull up a seat. What I, what I find is uh, pretty much um, when your kids are five, they can go to school. But they can they can go to school at six as well. So you've got that toss-up of whether they go to school at five or six. Um, I was the oldest at school. So I was 16 in grade 10, 18 in grade 12. Didn't stay that long. But I would have been the kid that was 18 in grade 12, had a license and all that sort of stuff. So um, – I really found school quite easy um, and I had a lot of fun. Uh, I was good at math and then all the selective subjects like woodwork and design and drawing and stuff like that. But um, I hated English. <laughs> uh, I didn't have any time for, for reading. 
um, which is crazy because now is like uh, an adult who owns businesses. Everyone's yeah. like, oh, you should read books because it's, it's, you know, most business owners that do well read books. And I literally can't remember the previous page when I get to the next one. I'd rather an audio book and even yeah. then I get bored and distracted. So I'm more of like a, uh, you know, like a, a 15 to 20 minute TED talk kind of, uh, you know, um, snippet sort of guy rather than books. Um, so yeah, but as, as far as just doing well at school, I mean, I really didn't struggle with school. I just couldn't wait to get out of it. I liked working. I wanted to work and I started my apprenticeship when I was 16. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I never struggled with it. I was just, uh, fortunately the kid that never studied for tests and did his homework in 10 minutes. Yeah. And, now, uh, now obviously like just down, wanted to play football and have friends. Yeah. Now obviously down the track you become, you know, you started kicking ass and knocking people out. Were you doing that in school as well? Were you getting into fights or anything? Oh, no, you know, no, no, I never, well, I did, I actually did, that's a lie, so I never <laughs> did, but I wasn't the kid that was fighting all the time, you know, I wasn't, I yeah. wasn't a, a shit stirrer, so to speak. I, um, oh, I, I've been suspended from school twice, uh, I never wagged a day in my life, I never did anything wrong or anything like that, but my father told me I never hit first, always hit last, and, um, and the only two times I ever got in trouble at school uh, was exactly that. Uh, you know, um, and then the other one was, uh, you know, some, some nasty words were thrown around at my sister who we, we aren't super close, but, uh, I definitely felt like they were unwarranted and I was in grade 10 and we, we started a massive playground brawl (laughs) between (laughs) two, two year grades. Um, so look, I'm I'm no I'm no saint, you know what I mean. But um, I, I never did shy away from a fight. Uh, typically, um, you know, when I was growing up, I played before I joined the army. I played about 17 or 18 seasons of rugby league, and you know, if there was a fight on the field, I had some kind of involvement, <laughs> whether I was shit stirring and starting it or whether I was involved in it or whatever it was. And uh, anyone that played footy with me or grew up around me knows that. So, you know, I, I do I do like to fight. It's something that is, is part of me. I'm just fortunate now that I know how to because back then it was like everyone else just grabbed the jumper and start swinging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Now you you leave yeah. so you leave school. So obviously you had enough school in grade ten. And uh, yeah. what what do you do for the next few years? And then you start your baking trade. And is this because your old your old boy was uh, into the into that scene? Oh well, I guess that is sort of like um, it's sort of like that. I'm really like moving around here lots on you, but um, <laughs> it it is. Um, when I was goes back to that working thing, when I was fourteen and in grade sort of eight and nine, I was working Friday and Saturday night night shifts. Mm. Like so that was actually my first ever paid job was working night shifts in a bakery. Um I worked with a good baker. Um unfortunately he wasn't a good person, but he was a good baker. He uh he had a an involvement in my my old man's downfall. But um but yeah, so um, I just I just liked it, you know. What I mean, it was uh, it was something I'd done, and my parents wouldn't let me leave school unless I had a trade or a full time job. Um, so I thought, well, I need a trade. 
So um, I took the school holidays and made the most of my time off. And then before I went back to grade 11, um, I got the ultimatum from my mum that it was time to find a job or go back to school. So I went and put my resume in and got the first job that I put in for as yeah. a tradesman, as a baker. And um, funny enough, it wasn't even a, a baker's job. It was it was literally um, they wanted – I misread the, the ad and they wanted people to work like front of house basically. Like, yeah in the in the bakery um and so i went in and gave him a resume uh and told him i was looking for a trade and and they're like oh you've just applied for a like a, a bakery like assistant job and i was like oh well got any trades going and uh funny enough her husband was like oh yeah i'll put you on so that's just how i got my apprenticeship um <laughs> and then i moved around a little bit but by the time i was 20 i'd, I'd done I was working at Baker's Delight, finished my trade at Baker's Delight, um, done a couple of uh, rounds of Cert 4 trainer assessor. Uh, anyone in the army knows that bad boy. Mm, yeah, definitely. And um, and, uh, and I was managing a bakery. And then when I turned 21, I got a job. I slowly moved my way up the coast. I started working at Tartra, uh, like Marimbula area. Um, in a in a Swiss bakehouse, and it was pretty good at the time. I think uh, oh, sorry, I was twenty. So um, yeah, pretty much straight after my trade, I moved there, started living there by myself. It was pretty cool. Um, just played footy to socialise and worked um, uh, pretty much like an eleven or twelve day fortnight. Yep. Um, and at the time it was like sixty five grand a year. Um, so we going back eighteen years ago, like that was pretty good money back then um and i don't know what to do with it because i didn't have a house or anything i was sharing a house so i was sharing rent um it was pretty good and then moved to queensland did a business certificate and um and uh was gonna buy a bakery um got the shits uh one night at work and thought fuck i need a new job i need to do something different yeah um, I got the shits with uh, the industry is terrible. The industry is um, highly underpaid as far as the workforce goes. Uh, uh, in my opinion, I was managing a bakery for six hundred and fifty bucks a week, um, and I was doing like nine to ten hour days. It was just rubbish, uh, and I was willing to sort of stick it out because I did like the job, and I and I don't mind night shifts. Like it never worried me. I, I lived. And enjoyed it. Um, I worked a second job during the day, so I was always sort of, sort of pretty good with it. Um, but a lot of, um, <clears throat> what do you say? Like, people tend to do a bunch of different things to get through night shifts, and it wore thin on me over time. Dealing with, um, you know, people ringing up at ten minutes before their shift to tell you that they'd slept in, but they're actually resigning. They weren't just going to be late to work. And yeah, just real unreliable sort of industry. Um, so before few weeks before I went into business, I just pulled the pin and um, and the army advertising got me. Um, yeah, yeah. So did did you ever think about joining the military, you know, as a young no, fellow, especially because your old boy was in? No? My old boy was in and and, uh, and my uncle was in. He did 12 years and then um, their cousin went to Vietnam. Like, So I, I do have a military history in the family. It's not a big one, but I do have a military history. Um, but it was never part of 
my plans ever. Like, I just got a job to get out of school, got a trade, and you know, it was like, oh, whatever, whatever comes, comes. And, you know, like, I, I kind of use that experience now to say to people, like, you know, there's young kids that are like, oh, I think I want to join the army. I'm like, oh, go and do it. Because in 10 years, you'll do something different. Exactly. You know? um, so, so fortunately, some people do their trade and they can get different jobs. Like, you can be an electrician and you can go be an aircon installer or you can do a bunch of different stuff that sort of can – can keep you interested, but there's only, you know, you're baking bread, you're fucking baking bread, you know what I mean? Like it's just a different, yeah. it's just a different bakery. <laughs> so you can't actually get away from it. It's just the same shit. Um, so I, I like to think, you know, that um, probably about every 10 years, most people get bored. Um, you know, most, most military uh, ladies and guys, I should say, uh, they don't, they don't tend to, um, make their 10 years you know what i mean these yeah. days so most people do get their shits with their job regardless of what it is no exactly what 10 right. years is up um so it doesn't really matter what you do when you're 20 because you do something different at 30 and you probably do something different again at 40 and then by the time you're 50 you realize that you fucking hate working for someone and it's time to actually just do something you love and you probably got enough money to semi-retire so you just go off and do something you love so yeah. um you know, and for some people, that's mowing lawns. They like to look at the lawn. You know, it's it's nice. It smells nice. It's therapeutic for some people. I like cutting lawns. You know what I mean? So it could be you hit fifty and you're like, I'm just going to cut two lawns a day. Mm. You know what I mean? And, and and that's what you want to do. So, um, yeah, I think I just uh, I started baking just to get out of school, man, because I'd already done it. Yeah, and uh, I got about I probably did it for about six years. And then it wore thin and it, was, it wasn't the industry uh, so much like as in the job or anything. I liked that. The hours, I liked that. Uh, I worked everything from all nights through to early mornings to lunchtime. So I kind of done it all. Um, it was just the, the people like yeah. dealing with just rat bags, you know, like the just unreliable kind of people that just drive me, drive me insane. I'm yeah. a good worker, I think, you know what I mean? And, I just uh, can't stand it when someone just rings up 10 minutes, especially at 10 to 1 in the morning, you know what I mean? Oh, sorry, I'm not coming. What do you mean you're not coming? I resign. Like, fuck off. Yeah, know? mate. So it just wears thin, you know? And um, so I went home on a Saturday, opened the Courier Mail to the 400 bloody jobs there, and uh, the ADF had a double spread. one. <laughs> You know it, 131901. <laughs> call us, we'll give you an information package. And six weeks, literally six weeks later, I was at Kapuka. No way. Fuck, that's so, a quick um, turnaround. It was insane, man. I got there and um, we had two platoons. Um, our entire platoon at Kapuka was all infantry, and our uh, sister platoon was, I think they had about five people that weren't infantry. So mm. it was pretty much like two platoons of infantry. All joined at the same time. Some guys are like, oh, man, I've been waiting a year. I was like, fuck, I applied six weeks ago. I took a holiday and then here I am. Um, you know, there's, I think, you know, I joined the army at 21. There's a lot of benefits to that. I, um, I knew how to iron my own clothes. Um, that's a good start. Um, I knew how to make my own bed. Yeah. And I'd already been told, uh, I, I try not to swear too much on podcasts. Nah, fuck, I don't I'd care. I'd already been <laughs> I'd already been told to fuck off numerous yeah. times. You know, I was 16 years old. Someone held a knife to, to me, you know, when I was working night shifts. So it's like, 
I've already faced all this shit, like a, a, a full track telling me to get on the shit line because the, the shit train's about to come through is like nothing to me. That's a joke. So I really dealt with Kapuka quite easy. Uh, it wasn't a shock to my system. Um, I know there's a bunch of 17, 18-year-old kids that were that were shitting bricks because they've been cuddled all their life, and that's fine. You know what I mean? Like, I do that to my son. But, uh, but it's – yeah, I definitely dealt with joining the Army – pretty easy i like to think i probably got a, a personality for it as well um i'm the kind of guy that stays quiet and does does as i'm told and um i always ask for advice even if i know the answer yeah so yeah that always that always helps you settle in you know because the senior guys are just waiting to tell you that you're a shit human <laughs> and uh if you just ask them so they feel important uh and swallow your pride then you tend to fit in nice and easy and that's that's pretty much what i did for the first sort of six months in the battalion, and uh, funny enough, that's as long as it took for me to land in the Middle East. So yeah, um, just yeah. just backing yeah. up, like what made you join the infantry? Was that just a spare of the uh, moment thing? And obviously, did you know what was going on in the world at that stage? Obviously, Iraq was fucking in full swing. Man, Afghan was, was in full a, swing. Timor, <laughs> fucking really, everything. Solis, really, really well written. Um, uh, a really well written website. <laughs> to be honest with you, man. Uh, gotcha. You know, when you do your um, Scotty you do your from day and they go, "I'll oh, go home and check out the website, and then get back to us with uh, with what you reckon you want to do." And so I went home and I, I read the infantry one, uh, the gunner one. I oh, think fuck, I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I read the uh, the armored one. Yeah. Uh, and the others I breezed over, but really I just wanted to shoot shit and blow stuff up. Oh so, fuck yeah. Um. You know, I'd never really, I'd never wanted to be in the military up to that point. So I don't think it was something that I grew up going, oh, my dad did this or, you know, my uncle did this or my grandfather did this. And it wasn't something where I had some kind of tradition to sort of lean on. I'd, I'd never really shot firearms. I thought it was cool. And if shit goes bang, then most guys like it. So um, the, the website read really well. I went back. I said, I want to be infantry. Um I know I had enough study hours from courses I'd done to be an officer, but it sounded kind of boring to me. Um, Good choice. I just wanted to get after it, man. You know what I mean? So like six months training as opposed to two years seemed pretty good as well. Um, Not that I'd ever even considered being an officer or anything, but it was just something that came up on on the process. And um, it just didn't – I just read the website, man, and I just took whatever sounded the most exciting. Um, yeah. which is the exact opposite of, uh, advice I give to everyone that asks me these days. And that's not a that's not that's not an insight or anything, but my opinion to anyone that wants to join the military now is go and do it. It was the time of my life. Mm. Um, I had a blast. I enjoyed every minute of it. I got a whole shitload of lifetime of injuries and memories that come with it. Um, but it was the best seven years, you know, arguably the best seven years that I'd had up until that point and, you know, I, I do obviously do what I love now, but go and join the military, have fun, but do yourself a favor and do something you can do outside the army because at some point the military will run out. That's that 10-year cycle. Exactly. There's no re- there's no retention anymore. They're not paying you bonuses to stay 20 years or anything like that. You know, these days it's like you are, you, jo- you just, it's just another job, man. You know yeah. I mean? And when you get tired of it, 
and you get tired of turning up to work at 7.30 and being told you're on guard duty that night, <laughs> you're going to look for another job. And hopefully you're a mechanic or a builder or an electrician or you can fucking drive a truck in the mines or something, you can go and do the same job elsewhere because, you know, being a security guard or working in a prison, is, it's not super good and that's about all infantry guys are qualified to do. Yeah, yep. No, you're exactly right, mate. You finished Kapuka, then you head to Singo. How did you find that transition from being a general shitbag at Kapuka going into specific uh, infantry training? Do you grasp that concept quite well? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was um, – I, I like to think I'm, a, I'm an alpha kind of guy and you know, I, I want to be better than everyone else. And I grew up with competition being part of my life. and um, So for me, I just wanted to carry the heaviest pack and the heaviest weapon and walk the furthest distance. And that's probably the same reason why I'm broken right now. But um, I, I thought it was – like I said, I, I dealt with the military itself pretty good. I think like I, I sort of lived life a little bit before I got there. I didn't come straight out of school. Um, and so I didn't – actually, I didn't drink before I joined the Army either. So I didn't yeah, like right. party life. Uh, Newcastle is a great place to go out in town. Yeah, mate. That's where, um, that's where the I sun, live. The sun also, uh, the sun in Newcastle hits different uh, if you're drunk on the beach the next day too. So <laughs> make sure you slip, slop, slap. But um, no, I got I got myself a good bout of third degree burns down there from the sun. Um, I missed the train. I missed the train to get back to Singo. <laughs> and I had 30 Classic. bucks to my name. So I bought a pair of board shorts instead of some sunscreen. And that night I was, I was in a lot of pain. And... Um, I uh, almost got myself back squatted. They were, they were pretty bad. Um, and But I refused to not do my job. So everyone knows that if you um, if you can do your job, then then you're sweet. And they're like, oh, you're going to you have to um, take some time off. And I was like, no, no, I'll, I'll be sweet. Um, and I still remember we had – so I got burnt on a Sunday. And then that whole week was like range week. So like obs course, range, carrying packs and webbing. And I remember um, the blisters, man, on the Monday morning, I had to go up to the RAP every morning and get this fucking like a, you know, like a football shoulder pad. Yeah, yeah. I had to get them to put all this padding and gauze on me <laughs> and burns cream. And then I did the obs course and I remember getting the boys uh, to take my shirt off and it was like a layer of skin inside it. Fuck. Like, Every blister had just popped and the skin just peeled off. But um, it's I think that's what makes um, – probably not getting burnt what makes the military great. But um, I didn't want to leave the boys, you know what I mean? So for me, it was like I was in a, a reasonable amount of pain, but I just got it dressed and uh, I carried on because I wanted to go to Townsville with, with my mates. And I'd already spent – for us, we'd spent all of Kapuka together and the same platoon was together in Singleton. Yeah, right. Um, so we were we were already five months deep, you know, four months deep. And so for me, it was just like uh, like there was any inkling as a young soldier that there was like, oh, we can just put you over there. You can have a couple of weeks off. You'll join back in the next course. Fuck that. I'm staying with the boys. So, that, yeah, it's a funny story. Um, it's a dumb story, you know, like just a <laughs> dumb young guy that didn't use sunscreen, but – uh, I was in a reasonable amount of pain, and um, but it, but you know, looking back now, I'm glad that I stuck it out, and you know, it's just that thing. It's the camaraderie that the military builds. Hundred um, percent. 
which I think is the biggest thing that people miss, in my opinion. Mate, it is. Yeah. It's um, that tribe. I didn't want to. I didn't want to leave my mates. And ironically, the the same guys that were peeling the shirt off were the guys that were in Afghanistan with me. You know, exactly. Eight months later. So, um, yeah, it's it's a funny one, but um, I, I definitely adjusted to well to it. Um, I think I adjusted to being a yes man, pretty good. Just being like, yep, yep, yep. You know, what I mean, never saying no and never trying to rebut against the system or anything like that. Um, I was happy to just do as I was told, and and I think that is probably the the best thing you can do when you join the army. Just do as you do as you fucking told. Yeah, fucking exactly. That's it. And ask, then ask for advice when you don't need it because you know the answer because it makes all the senior guys yeah feel like you're not a prick yeah and you're not arrogant you know because the worst thing you can do is be like oh no I know what I'm doing and then fuck it up and ask yeah. for help they'll be like oh you know what you're doing mate you'll be right. Um, and that's not just the military. Like that even happens. You know, I worked in corrections after the military. You go out there, you know how to do something on the computer. Just ask anyway, because the first few times, if you just miss one little thing and you're like, "Oh no, I'm good," and someone offered you help, then uh, you fuck it up. They'll just be like, "Oh, you're good, mate. You'll be right. You know what you're doing." Yeah. You know what I mean, so the best thing you can do is take a piece of humble pie, swallow your pride, and uh, do as you're told, and and ask advice, and have the time of your life. That's it, and obviously one big thing there is to say in the army is no question is a stupid question. <laughs> but but there always was that stu- there always was that yeah. stupid question. <laughs> There's always the guy that asks the question like no, ten, ten to four, you're about to get an EKO, and has anyone got any questions about today? <laughs> oh yes, yeah, sir. Actually, you're like oh, oh fucking fuck this guy. Uh, and he asks fucking three or four questions because they all just run on and then it's 4.30. You're like, can't you cost me a fucking 40-minute <laughs> yeah. EKO today? Um, so yeah. in Singo, what options, what battalions did they give you? What, did you get any uh, selections? We didn't have an option. Yep. Um, we fell oh, was into there? a battalion. Yep. Um, so I do believe that we, we got to select you know, your, your three options. Yeah. But what actually happened for us was um, due to the tempo – and the requirement for soldiers. We basically, um, we went to, uh, we went to Singo, and when we got to Singo, we had a platoon commander from Tuaria, a platoon sergeant from one, and then we had two full tracks from two and two from one. And we didn't think anything of it at the time. We were just told they were coming down to run our course, um, and, uh, and, that we would likely end up in Townsville. Uh, our course at Singo was split between there and Townsville. Um, and I, I don't, it was going back a long time now. I don't remember exactly when, mm. but um, we were told that we were going to end up in Townsville. We didn't know where. Um, and we did the first, I'm going to say, five weeks in Singo. And then we got our Christmas break, um, but it wasn't the Christmas break like the eight weeks downtime that you know the soldiers get. It was, it was like three weeks or something like that. And so we left Singo, packed everything up, and then we arrived in Townsville as our return. Um, and we did five weeks of field up there. So we did all the classroom stuff and the range week. Yeah, right. Down at Singo, and then when we went to Townsville, we did like. We did like a week. We did like one, two one-week trips 
at high range and then a two-week defensive X with the hardcore at the end of it and then a week uh, of fucking marching and admin before we went to our battalion. And it was when we got to Townsville, they said to us, uh, whoever your section commander is, that's the battalion you're going to. And that's how it happened. Yeah, right. So there was two guys from one, two guys from two, and that was the two sections going to one and the two sections going to two, and that's pretty much how it happened. Um, and I was with uh, uh, my full track at the time, Robbo. I was with him and Ian Bone, and um, I just ended up at Touro. That's just that's just the way it works. So I think it was um, with a few reservists that joined that sort of got to the battalion the same day we marched out. I think it was about 23 of us ended up there. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, how did you guys go marching into a battalion? Obviously, that's a, it's an experience in itself, being a lid. <laughs> It is definitely an experience in itself. Um, you know, from, from my memory, um, the biggest thing at the time was everyone hated us because most people knew we were joining Charlie Company and Charlie Company was six months out from an Afghan yeah, trip. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we got to the battalion as those fucking guys. Yeah, I mean, these guys just straight out of their course. They're going to send these 20 lids to Afghan. We've fucking been here for 10 years, 15 years. We miss out on this trip like fucking you know what I mean and um, that that was just us you know what I mean and, and, and I still think that just comes back to just when someone says something to you about it you just got to be able to nod and uh, keep walking yeah exactly <laughs> and keep your head down um, but yeah I, I think um, it was pretty good we got um, I'm going to say three weeks acclimatization um, so I don't know why but it was battalion um, policy to acclimatize for three weeks, but we'd already been there for five weeks. Yeah. Um, so, but I think because when you march in a battalion, that's just the policy. So we had acclimatization for three weeks um, in Delta Company. We did, uh, I remember we we had to do MAG 58 course because we didn't do that on our infantry course. So we had to do MAG 58, uh, maybe the old Carl Gustav. Um, we had to get ticked off on a few things. So we did all that in that three weeks. And then we all got posted to Charlie Company. Yeah. And, um, man, I think, uh, I think we might have done like maybe two or three field exercises, um, initially. And then it was like, it was, it was like three months out from, uh, our pre-deployment training and we'll straight into it. Yeah, right. So you do your pre-deployment. How's the, how's the emotions? Like, fuck, you're going to go to Afghanistan. You're fresh out of the – straight into a war well, zone. This is in Townsville too. So just when I got to the battalion, I just I was single. I just met my missus. Um, so that was – it was a whole bunch of like weird new stuff going on for me. But yeah. it was, it was, um, it was pretty good, you know. Uh, we met and she worked, I worked and – um. Yeah, we uh, we barely seen each other for about eighteen months. Yeah, um, and now she can't get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been we've been married. We've been together sixteen years in April. So yeah, yeah. Um, so we we stuck it out, but uh, it was it was chaos, man. You know, like pre deployment training. Um, I I really struggled initially in Townsville. Um. It, it probably sounds dumb to most people, but I struggle with the old hurry up and wait. Mm. Um, I really just the way that I'd worked up until then, working 
you know, night shifts and day shifts for two different jobs at the same time and sleeping in between and just that work ethic, you know, like I bought a house and, and bought a brand new V8 car and everything before I'd even joined the military. So I was 21 when I settled in my house. So I joined the army three, three weeks later. So I sort of really struggled with that fucking sitting around all the time. Yeah, ages. breezeway. Um, but for most people, it's nothing. It's just like, oh, fuck, there's no work on, you know, because they joined the army at 18, 19, and it's, it, it's nothing. But my dead set used to ring my old man up, and I was like, I fucking hate this shit. Like, I don't do anything. I'll just sit around. Like, I want to do something else. And uh, he used to say to me, just stick it out, mate. Four years is not a long time. You'll be good. And um, I knew I was deploying. So, you know, I guess at that time, that was the motivation. Um, and then when I got back, um, yeah. You know, I did, I did obviously some other stuff, but um, deploying is the epitome of your job. And 100%. that's why I sort of understand for guys that have been in for 10 or 15 years, not getting to go to the, you know, to the desert, especially if they've done Timor three times, I can <laughs> understand why they'd be pissed off. Mm. You know what I mean? But I don't care, but I can understand it. Um, it it's sort of, it's, it's what you want to do. It's it's everything you work for. It's all those times sitting in a cage, being told to do your fucking DP one check, and a thousand times over on a Friday and missing a water bottle, getting your ass reamed for it. You know what I mean? It's all that, all those occasions. You know, the leopard crawling across the football oval, yeah. um, just all this shit stuff you had to do that was part of your job, but it was just like boring stuff. Yeah, just all like it it peaked. You know, at that. At that opportunity, and so um, the pre-deployment training. Oh, look! It's funny because when I look back at it now, there's a lot of people um, that talk about uh, you know industries or organisations and stuff stuck in their ways. So we got ready for a sandpit trip at high range, which is like bushland. Yeah. So to me, to to me. Um, Whilst you're doing all your drills and all your normal stuff, it's not very reflective. I feel like the mil- the military is very stuck in. Like I don't even know why anyone goes to Tully anymore. You know what I mean? Only because it's a government-owned training ground. But yeah, like when was the last time we ever went to a jungle? Yeah, you know no, exactly mean? right. Um, and I'm, I'm not. I never went to Tully, so I can't actually even whinge about it. <laughs> um, um, don't know how I got out of those, but I did. Yeah. Um, but. To me, it, it's it seems kind of pointless that the military's still stuck in that way, and we've just done, you know, twenty years of, of desert trips, and and we still don't train in the desert. So um, it it does seem a bit a bit weird. I guess you know it's all about drills and mm. and planning and stuff like that. So it's still it's still point like there's still a point to it, but I definitely found it kind of odd afterwards looking back at it. Um, at the time, it was just another three two-week field trips. So we just went up for two weeks at a time. We'd come back for a few days, go back up again, come back for a few days, go up again. And then we had three weeks off. Then we deployed. Um, and uh, I was kissed on the dick, man. I, I like I got Christmas rockle. Uh, I came home. We, we flew out New Year's Day. So I got Christmas, my birthday, and New Year's Day. Yeah, nice. at home. Um. So I, I got I got pretty lucky, you know. What I mean, I can't complain. Um, I deployed in winter, 
with lower tempo, obviously, over there in winter. Um, it was still tempo, but it was lower. Uh, and, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty, I like to, I look back and, and probably half the battle for a lot of veterans is, um, justifying your trip as an easy trip compared to others. And, uh, I don't think that makes it easy. I think it's just a, it must just be like a, a veteran way of justifying it. So, yeah, yeah. Now you were on RTF three and, uh, yeah. You guys lost uh, Trooper Bobby Pierce at the end there. Actually, man, that that was a that was a buzz uh, a buzz. That was that was my moment. That was um, that was my moment when I realised I was I was at war. Yeah, uh, that that was uh, that was an interesting one. I'm just gonna change it up my seat again. No, you're right, dude. But I fidget all the time. <laughs> fidget, man. I can't sit still. Um, yeah. So. Uh, Landed in Kuwait, um, flew out September 28th, um, did eight days in Kuwait, you know, mm. live fire training and Fat field house and stuff like that. Um, flew out and landed um, in TK the day that he died. Um, and um, the next day, so that's just the push that we were on. So there was some of our deployment got there um the week or two weeks before and the push that we were on got there the day that he that he died on a handover patrol and um the eye-opener for me the the moment where i realized that um you know all the pre-deployment training was felt like field trips Mm. um and it all became real was uh, when we were actually at the briefing room and they skull dragged the vehicle back past and it had no fucking wheels on it, man. There was holes in it. And that was that was weird. Um, it's kind of hard to explain. I mean, no, no, exactly. Yeah. But for some people, that's hard to explain. But it, it wasn't like a like a fear or a scared thing. It was just more like, oh, fuck, I see what's going on here. Like, <laughs> you know, it's real. And so that that was probably one of my, my most um, defining memories. Um, where I where I realised what was going on, and then um, the next one was our first patrol was a night patrol, and I was the number one scout, and that was yeah fun. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, five cent, fifty cent. You know what I mean? Yeah. Butthole was butthole was going crazy. Um, heart rate was the highest it's ever been, and um, we just literally stepped off at like eleven p.m. and we were back by one. We just went from a from an FOB to a um oh sorry from a patrol base we went from a patrol base to the green zone and mm. sat down and fucking had a little look and then walked back but just it's weird man there was farmers like farming in the middle of the night and that shit's scary and they yeah. don't even have firearms but yeah. you're just waiting for you fucking waiting for someone to shoot you or for something to blow up it's it's kind of weird um and that was probably another another memory for me that stuck um, with me so yeah and then um uh damien lydiard um when he um got hit with the ied mm. um when he was um uh trying to um fuck, i had a memory blank here um when he was trying to um defuse it yeah and pull it up um and uh 
we were on the other side of the the Chura Valley, so just on the other side of the green zone at another patrol base. Um, so that was that was probably another one as well. So yeah, there was a few there was a few uh, memories there, but um, that first one, I mean, um, Poppy was the only soldier that was part of our um, deployment, uh, part of RTF three. Um, passed away mm. that we lost uh, at the time um, but it's funny um, when you infantry and we, we were the first engineer led um, so all the HQ staff were all engineers were yeah. led by 3CR and I think we were the first engineer led uh, deployment and everyone thought it was funny at the time um, if you know what I mean like by funny like yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone had something to say about it you know what i mean but um but it was uh you know those guys probably at times you know it take us fucking eight hours to get to to get to chora from tk and it was like can we just drive there already but i mean man i, I never got blown up yeah so, and i fuck and it took guys, a long time didn't it yeah fuck like it would take eight hours some days sitting in the back of the bushy yeah have my chin my chin on the bottom of my <laughs> rifle true. yeah I was just asleep, you know what I mean? And um but we never got blown up, you know, so if they were excessively clearing roads, then I'm happy about that. Exactly. Exactly. I'm, I'm here to tell a tale. So um yeah, it was uh it was, you know, it was pretty good. Yeah, so mate, you get back to Australia, your deployment's done, you obviously get the thoughts of uh discharging. Uh, how long after did you dis- discharge? No, I transferred to be a PDI. Oh, did you? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so I deployed. Uh, I got back on April eight, um, two thousand and eight. Sorry, I I got back to Q eight April eight. I got back to the country on April thirteenth, two thousand and eight. I'll never forget it. Um, and um, I had surgery on on June fifth for an injury that I sustained while I was over there, just just from slipping over my mm. fucking ankle. And um, and then um. Pretty much while I was recovering from that, you know, I just experienced what a lot of people experience. You know, I was young. I eat what I want. I play footy. I trained. I just did my shit, and uh, and I was fit and healthy. And um, I had surgery. I had twelve weeks in in a boot, sitting on a lounge. Um, I got fat. I got depressed. I fucking spiraled out of control. Yeah. Um, and I had money. So um. It was just, yeah, it was, it was, you know, just, we just did like, uh, you know, we, like most guys, they go out, they party, um, they, yeah, they do all sorts of shit, gamble, yeah. learn how to play, yeah. learn how to play fucking poker while I was deployed, work that one out. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I didn't even know how to play cards before that. So, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things that, that, um, people get up to and get depressed and try and fill the void. And, uh, and fortunately for me, that's where I found fighting. So, um, Ian bone, um, I owe that guy so much. Um, and, uh, when I needed, when I needed something in my life, he was there and he was harsh. And, um, and at times it felt punishing, but, um, but he changed my life, and I wouldn't have what I have now without him. Yeah, so, right. Um, Shout out. It's uh, 
when I needed it, yeah, if you're in towns, we'll go check out Curry's training center. He's still tra- changing lives. So yeah, it's right. um when I uh, when I needed it, um, you know, I, w- I went to a gym up there. Oh, it's, a, it's a funny story. I, w- I won't go into too much detail, but I had a discussion with my wife. Uh, I was playing poker in the local, uh, you know, free poker tournaments mm. and winning shit and uh, spending four or five hours away from home at night. And and in the end, it was like, oh, well, if you're going to leave me at home by myself, like, at least go to the fucking gym. You know what I mean? Like, not to a poker tournament. So I joined a fucking gym. You know what I mean? And uh, here I am. I own two of them. So um, yeah. that that was it, – it. she didn't say it like that. It came out a little different to that, as most husbands would understand. <laughs> uh, it was a little bit more direct in a very short sentence. Um, and um, I, I joined a gym that I thought Ian was at. Um, but Ian wasn't at because he uh, had moved on for his own reasons. And again, when I say, you know, it changed my life, the guy that I trained with just didn't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Like he 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 wouldn't help me lose weight. I didn't know how to do it. I'd just been eating McDonald's my whole life, you know, and just shit food and whatever I wanted because I'd just never put weight on. I was young. And I put 13 kilos on and I needed to lose it. I was never going to pass the BFA or any of that shit again. Like anyone that seen me was like, well, you know, what happened to you, man? Like even my dad seen me one day. He's like, what the fuck? And uh, so I trained there for a bit. I lost a few kilos just because I was training, but this guy just wasn't helping me. And, um, and I finally found where Ian was training and coaching. And, um, you know, I never thought a, a single A4 page would change my life, but I started training with him and I said, I need you to help me. I need to lose weight. And um, and he wrote like with a pencil, man, like five meals and said, do this. Um, what are you doing for training? I said, I'm kickboxing here five nights a week and I'm lifting weights at the army base. And being military, he basically said, uh, when you go to lunch, you're allowed to eat meat and as much salad as you want, don't fucking touch anything else. And I went, yep, cool. And at night, you're only allowed to have green vegetables and meat, and you make sure you lift six days a week, chest and tries, back and biceps, shoulders and legs on a three-day split back-to-back. <laughs> and I was like, fucking done. So, man, um, four weeks into following this little single sheet of paper, and I don't know how much weight I'd lost, but I lost four kilos in the first week, and obviously a bunch of that would have been water. And um, I lost 23 kilos in 16 weeks. Fuck. Um, so I actually was 75 kilos. Um, and then six months after that, I had my first kickboxing fight while I was still in infantry. Um, and I probably reached out to him about, I'm going to say I started training six months into my rehab and I'm going to say that I started with Ian about nine months into it. And by the time I got, uh, 14 months post-surgery, I was running the best BFA I'd ever run. Yeah, right. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just – everything I was doing was better than I'd ever done it. I felt a million bucks. I was running 10Ks on a Saturday morning for fun and uh, I fell in love with fitness and I fell in love with martial arts, which I'd done as a – from the age of 6 to 13 anyway. Um and and it all just started because he helped me, man. And um, and it was harsh, and it wasn't a fancy fucking meal plan, and it it just wasn't what everyone thinks you're gonna get. 
You know what I mean? It was literally like, oh, yeah, here's a piece of paper and it's the test, right? It's the test. You know, I'm going to give this guy a sheet of paper with five meals on it and in four weeks if he comes back the same, then he's not following what I'm telling him. Yeah, I'm not gotcha. Him any time. Yeah, right. That's simple. And he tested me, man. He tested me. Wow. He gave me a sheet of paper and I came back. I must have lost fucking eight or nine kilos. And uh, and then he he honed in on it and he gave me his time and he gave me a better plan and he gave me more advice and he gave me more direction. And um, now hopefully I get to give back to him a bit. You know, he, um, he's been everywhere around the world with me, cornering me, coaching me. Um, and he's followed and supported me. He literally messaged me the other day and just said, how are you? You know, we talk every week and, um, you know, a lot of people have played an important role in, in my life and my journey and I've had other great coaches, and I'm grateful for them all. But um, I would probably still be that fat little shit failing BFAs. Yeah, he's a four sheet of paper, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and and a harsh test, which most people don't see as a test. But I knew what I was doing. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, the, fortunately, that's where my I reignited, I guess, my passion for for martial arts, and uh, that's also where. Um, I found fitness rather than just being training in the army. It became a, a bit more than that. And Passion. I started doing some some uh, OJTs at the at the 2RAR gym, fortunately because the battalion had its own gym with a PDI there. So I started doing some OJTs there. And then most people were deploying to Timor um, in 2009. Mm. And um, fortunately, um, I got on a CFL course and then a junior leaders course or sub one. Um, and they're the two courses you needed uh, along with like a, a good result on your CFL course to get on a PDI course. And I got on the next PDI course and that's where I transferred. So you, you do that for a bit. Ultimately, you discharge in 2013. But during this time, you've yeah, got- you've done a few fights as well. Obviously, you started fighting 20, oh, 26th of June 2010 in Bean Lee. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, I was fighting. I was fighting before that. Yeah, yeah. I, but I had I had a couple of kickboxing fights. Yeah. And then, yep. um, the Bean Lee one was my first pro fight. I yeah. had an amateur fight before that, and um, it was actually on six days' notice. I just told Ian I wanted to do um MMA, and I kind of like everyone thought that jujitsu was a bit fucking weird, you know, because it's two dudes grappling on the ground, and <laughs> it just didn't seem like a, a real alpha thing to do. And yeah. It was just. It was kind of like that's most people. It's like a personal space thing, you know. Um, I was like, oh, jiu-jitsu is maybe not for me. And I did it for a little bit. I had a fight and uh, I still talk to this guy. His name's Ryan Dunson. He owns a gym on the sunny coast. Uh, we compete against these guys and I promote fights now. So I've got a couple of these guys on my upcoming card. And um, he embarrassed me, man. Like I was I was an infantry soldier. I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing was going to touch me. I couldn't be beaten. And <laughs> he dead set fucking full guard on me hit me with his sweep and armbarred me and I was like, I'm never going to get embarrassed by that again. Um, and so I went from doing like two days a week of jiu-jitsu to doing five days a week of jiu-jitsu and two of kickboxing. And then I went pro in um, that fight that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and that that fight in, I think it was July 2010? No, it was uh, June 2010, 26th of June. Okay. Okay, it was two weeks before I went to Melbourne. Um, for my PDI course. Uh, so I had that fight, went down for my course. While I was on my course, I fought uh, end of November 2010. Yep. 
um, and um, I fought on AFC against Kenny Young. Yep. And that was on my PDI course. So what oh, was, was it? Oh, I was <laughs> yeah, I was, I was doing my PT course, which obviously everyone knows the volume of training they make you do anyway because you've got to participate in everyone's lesson. Um, and I was doing jiu-jitsu um, after course. And then there was a guy on my course, um, Liam Beard. He's, uh, he's doing something else now, but he was an Air Force um, PDI and he um, – he was holding pads for me. He'd never had a fight in his life. He'd done a bunch of amateur boxing. So he held pads for me. We had a fight and uh, we went out there and fucking got it done. Yeah. It was pretty right. cool, actually. Um, looking back now, it's kind of funny because you put all this time and effort into making sure everything's perfect. And um, yeah, I just got to I just got to get out there and hit some shit. And uh, I just had a guy holding pads for me in, in a, on a basketball court and doing jiu-jitsu in a gi. Um, and then... And then I got posted to Brisbane um, and the course coordinator for my PT course was the Woe PDI in Brisbane that year. So he got posted at the same time as us. So he was my boss in Brisbane and that definitely, um, without going into detail because I think he's still in, um, he definitely made my life very easy. Yeah, right. Yeah, he supported my journey. Yeah, nice. Uh, he, he would um, – allow me to go and cut weight on Fridays if I had a fight and he would pick me up after work and drive me to my weigh-ins. He was an amateur boxing background as well um, and he would come to my fights um, and he was very, very supportive but he also made work life very easy. Um, again, I did I did my job, you know what I mean? And, um, and the general thing with I think any role in the military, uh, the very regimental kind of like units um, – a little different, but like most of the casual sort of roles, you know, like the PDIs and the physios and anyone that works in medical sort of thing, um, and probably some others, but I'm not I'm not familiar with it. But it's generally like if you do your job and we don't hear from anyone yeah. complaining about you, then we're pretty good. And I was the PT for 6RR, and the general rule was unless someone from 6RR contacts me and says, where the fuck is this PDI? I haven't seen him in two months then I don't care because it means you're doing your job. And um, so, yeah, I just had to make sure I did my job and then he would support me with everything else I was doing. Um, and so that that definitely made my life easier. And the turning point for me, I got offered a fight in 2012 um, in Abu Dhabi on Abu Dhabi Warriors, um, which is now UAE Warriors. And it was against a guy called Kazanori Yakoda. And he was a legend at the time. Like he'd been around, he was 15, 5, and 5. Uh, it was like 10 grand US. Yeah. It was like good money. Um, and I applied for leave and they knocked it back. <sighs> and um, someone said to me, um, This is the time for you to decide uh, what your number one priority is in life. And if it's not the military anymore, then you need to get out before it's too late. Mm. Um, and I had a bunch of other issues with um, some things in the army at yeah, the time yeah. that were going on. Um, probably had my own issues, actually, to be honest with you, um, that were, were affecting my workplace, my work environment, and the vung shui of what was going on. And, uh, and so it was just easy for me to get out. Yeah. That's what I did. 
when you started your fighting career, do you ever think about the UFC? Was that was that the ultimate goal, or was it just fuck, just fight? Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. When I first started, it was like I'd fucking barely watch the UFC. I was just fighting yeah. for fun. Yeah, uh, and it was better to do that and get paid for it than to do it at the Mad Cow. Um, <laughs> if you know, you know. Yeah, mate. I've been uh, there a few times. <laughs> uh, you know, um, so yeah. Anyway, it was. Uh, I just started out fighting because it was fun. Yeah. And, um, and then I was like, I was like six and oh. And then it was, it sort of became a bit real. I was like, oh, fuck, maybe I can do this. But it was still like, from a fighting perspective, it was, it was in an era where um, you sort of had to go to the US to get in the UFC and stuff. And it was very encouraged that you went and trained over there um, and that you trained with a team that generally had a lot of guys in the UFC and you got a manager that could get you in and, um, I think, um, to me, that was a, a big thing. I didn't really want to go to the U S I didn't, I mean, I wanted to, but like, I didn't want to leave my job. I didn't want to sell my shit. I didn't want to sell my house. I didn't want to, it just sort of felt like too big a move for me for where I was in my life. Mm. And it's probably the one move I wish I had have done at some point. Um, it's probably the only regret I have is not at least spending, you know, six to 12 months over there or at least going over there for a couple of three-month holidays. But um, regret, not as in anything would have changed. Yeah. You know, I've got a good life now. So, um, But it, it may have given me an opportunity earlier than what I eventually got. Um, and as an athlete, I, I think once it became a possibility, I focused on it too much and that's where I started taking some losses. Because I probably wasn't given enough focus on each individual fight. I was probably more focused on the end goal. Um, and the turning point for me was uh, my record was 10 and 8. And I just lost four fights in a row. Um, and I realized the UFC wanted people to have like a 70% sort of win record. Um, and so I, uh, I said to my missus, when I lose again, I'm done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it up. And uh, at that point, it was, you know, I wanted to be in the UFC. I didn't want to just do MMA anymore. I wanted to be in the UFC. That's, that's what I wanted to do. And if it wasn't going to happen, I was going to stop. And uh, she was like, yeah, as long as you're happy with that, it's, you know, it's not putting it back on me. And I was like, no, no, um, I'm happy. This is my decision. And uh, I won five fights straight and signed with the UFC after that. So I think what it did was it sort of gave me the opportunity to focus on the here and the now, the fights that were happening. Um, because if any of those were were an L, then I was probably going to be, you know, never fighting again. So I think it just changed my psychology. Plus, I started working with a guy called um, Sean O'Gorman. He owns a book called The Strong Life Project. Yeah, I know uh, Sean Soggy well. Page yeah, yeah, Soggy. Yeah, so I started working with him, who I was put onto through a sponsor, and. Um, I can't tell you what he did, but he changed the way I thought. And uh, I don't know how it works. That's why it's his job and <laughs> not mine. Um, but he changed the way I thought. And uh, after the first fight, he said, you know, how'd you feel? And I said, I, I feel like I was coming off lo- like wins, not off losses, you know, and I was coming off four losses. And all of a sudden, it wasn't it wasn't a thing. It was almost like I was, I'd never lost before. You know, the confidence was good and the, the mindset was good and my head was good. And... Um, you know, I still got some um, some good 
phrases that he said to me back in the day that that I stick by and that I, I still tell my fighters and stuff like that when they're struggling and um I still talk to him now so yeah it was uh it was all just sort of happened at the right time yeah so you obviously you win that five and then you get signed by the UFC that's you know that's fuck that's your that was the ultimate goal yeah man I was working in a jail and uh you know it's not it was working so I could train that's that's kind of what I was doing and um yeah, I signed with the UFC on six days' notice, and I mean that's a we'll run out of we'll run out of time if I start telling you about that weight cut story. But that was fucking horrendous. I cut like thirteen kilos in six days, and um, most of it was water. Mate, so if, if you want to fucking if we we can stop it here and continue on next week or something, I'd love to go for another fucking half an hour hour. Yeah. Let's yeah, let's do, do that. that. So let's. What are you going to do? Just tag them on, man. I'll, I'll I can combine them together. So we'll do the exact same yeah, thing next great. week or something. Because bro, I reckon you've got another. I'll, I'll speak to you in a in a few days anyway. I'll send you a message right, on man, Insta. Too easy. Right, bro. Catch ya. Perfect. Thank you, bro. See ya. Yep. Yep. All yep. right. Gotcha. <clears throat> as long as you can hear me, we'll. Uh... Yeah. Sweet, dude. Sweet. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um. <laughs> All right, well, Zero Limits listeners, here we are back again. We've taken a week break because uh, we've got a bit more to talk about with Damien. Damien, we were at, I went over that last part. You were just talking about that, you know, you basically told your missus, one more fight and I'm fucking done if I lose. And then Soggy come in into the picture. Yeah. Then you won those five fights in a row, signed with the UFC, and... And the rest is history. <laughs> the rest is history. Here we are, mate. Yeah, so you've Soggy's gotten to your ear, mate. He's giving you some words of wisdom. He's like a like a, a modern-day Buddha. You win five in a row, and then the UFC pick you up. You know, what's what's that like? You know, the UFC, it's a big fucking deal. Well, I mean, the call, the call is massive, you know what I mean? So um, I was working as a, a prison officer. Uh, they like to call them custodial officers screw. I, mean, but I, was, I was a screw yeah um and uh i was at work on a saturday which was um six so the weigh-in was like the following um friday night or friday saturday something like that so like six seven days away um and then my wife rang me and i'd been i think i had been working there about three years at the time and um you know like you can't have your phones and everything in the jail and all that so like you know, I don't, I don't like to be that guy that gets nagged at work. So my missus just never called me. I was like emergency only, you know what I mean? Mm. And um, everything else was email. So if you've got to contact me, it's not a rush, just email me. But if it's emergency ringing, and I get this uh, radio, and it's like you've got an outside line for you. And I was like, that's fucking weird. Um, and, look, I just fought um, three weeks prior to the call. So four weeks prior to the event, I defended uh, my XFC Australian title. And probably like for two weeks, I stayed like around 80 kilos so I could make weight, which was at 70.8. But like that's a, that's a hefty water cut, but it's, it's yeah. possible. And um, the call never come. And I got sort of like two weeks out and I was like, oh, well, fuck, it's probably, you know, it's probably not going to happen. But for the most part, guys sort of stay ready because, um, you know, against the UFC, you get two ways to get there. Is one, you're just a hot prospect. You know what I mean? You're like, you're an international star as an amateur and a, and a pro, and it's inevitable that you're going to get signed, and you just keep doing your thing, and, and your manager will take care of it. The other way is is opportunistically. So, um, you know, you're on a good win streak. 
uh, there's a card coming up in your area, um, whether that's in Australia or in my case, it was in Brisbane, so even better. Um, and you just got to be ready for anything, you know, like ready for an opportunity. In my case, it was um, uh, Abel Trujillo had visa issues and couldn't get into the country. And it was a week out. So they're like, fuck, we need to replace him. Now, he was fighting Ross Pearson. The weirdest thing happened, man, um, only a couple of nights earlier, I had this this dream that I got a call. And it sounds a bit fucking dumb because yeah. it happened. I got a call to fight Ross Pearson. And in my mind, I was like, that's a sick fight. Like, I'll take that. Um, but I knew, like, he was a pretty high-profile kind of guy at the time. And, I mean, he, he still is, but, like, you know, before he had a bit of a drop off, he was he was definitely like up there, you know, ranked or whatever. And um, anyway, funny enough, Abel was meant to fight Pearson, um, but instead of me getting the Ross Pearson fight, they shuffled around a couple of other lightweights, rematched Ross, and gave me the guy that was left over, um, which was Alan Patrick, uh, you know, third degree black belt, nice, two or three time Brazilian champion yep, or something yep. like that, um, and he's basically a wet blanket, you know what I mean? Um, just sort of takes people down and lays on them and not a high finish rate or anything like that. But but he was good and I think he was like 14 and one or 14 and two or something at the time. So um so anyway, um yeah, you know, I, I sort of thought, well, it's not gonna happen. So um I went to work and um the night before I watched a game of footy, had a pizza, had a few beers, you know, I sort of switched off. Um after sort of staying switched on after my fight. And then I was at work the next day. We had a cook-up and I went to lunch, a couple of meat pies at the mess um, and, you know, just the usual shift work stuff. And then my wife rang me and she said, um, Justin Lawrence wants to talk to you, something about the UFC. And I was like, oh, fuck it, surely not. Anyway, Justin Lawrence was a promoter of XFC um, and – they had reached out to him um, looking for a lightweight, not me. They reached out looking for uh, Nick Patterson. Nick Patterson was a former lightweight, had previously fought at welterweight, and he also had, I believe, like diabetes or something like that. So cutting weight was an issue for him. Anyway, um, I rang Justin, got his number, rang him back. He said, do you want to fight next weekend? I said, Fuck yeah, I want to fight next weekend. He said, um, can you make weight? I said, fuck, what kind of question is that? I've never missed. And um, that, that was that was basically what happened. And I got off the phone, I rang my wife. I said, we made a baby, we're in the UFC. And, um, you know, it's at the time, it, it feels like a life-changing experience. Like I'd yeah. been all over the world. I'd taken wins, I'd taken losses. I had the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. You know, um, I felt like I've been robbed at times. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I won close decisions. Like, it, it just like I'd experienced everything, you know. I, I traveled. I, I'd been grinding. I changed jobs. I was married. I was giving up all this fucking time. And, um, you know, people underestimate how much uh, athletes, partners sit at home and probably question whether or not they want yeah. to sit at home alone or whether they want to find someone else that wants to have dinner with them every night, you know. And, you know, you, you hear swimmers talk about it. Like they get up at two in the morning to go and do their training before the day. Like how often do you know you want to wake up with your partner? They never get to wake up with their partner. My, my missus barely ever went to sleep with me, so I was like, 
it's sort of just like a relief for everyone, I think. It's it's like I got my contract, but it paid off sitting there waiting for it as well. So I think for the whole family it was a it was a massive moment. Um and yeah, pretty much from there we um oh, oh so what actually happened was Nick Nick was like, I can't make it. Like I'll never make that weight ever again. Uh, I'm done. I'm, and and he retired, he's never fought again. Um, and credit to him because he could have taken that fight, missed weight, paid a percentage, and he would have been a UFC fighter for the rest of his life. But instead, um, you know, he took he took the high road and um, realized that it just wasn't possible. So I took it. I remember that morning I was 82.8 kilos before I went to work. Um, and I only remember it because obviously I had to cut the weight and it was the last number I had in my mind. Um, but I would say after my morning coffee, the cook-up and a couple of meat pies at lunch, I was probably closer to 84. So um, needless to say, I had a couple of tins of tuna in my bag um, at work. That's what I ate for the rest of the day. And I uh, threw a sickie on the Sunday because um, it was my last day before I had seven days off in my roster anyway, so timing was weird. It worked out perfect. So I threw a sickie on the Sunday. Uh, and I hit the pavement, man, and I started cutting weight. Um, and what did you, you have to cut? What did you have to cut? How, sorry. Well, I was like eighty four, and I weighed in at seventy point eight. So I, I probably cut. <laughs> like I'm going to say, from the time I woke up is the last number I have. I'm going to say it's twelve point one kilos. Um, Seven but days. Whatever I'd eaten and drank that day as well. Obviously, I had to lose. So I'd say we were closer closer to thirteen or thirty between thirteen and fourteen kilos. Uh, I highly uh, condone that and don't don't recommend it to anyone. Um, it was it was excessively dangerous, and I see why people miss weight deliberately um, to not affect their performance and and just take a you know a bit of a pay penalty. But I don't have it in me. I'm a person of honor, and um, you know I think that uh, you're only as good as your word. And when someone asks me if I can make weight, I'm going to make weight. Um, you know, well, unfortunately, you probably die trying. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things. I um, I signed the promotional agreement. Um, at work, they emailed it to me. I printed it off, signed it, scanned it, sent it back. That night, um, Justin came over. Oh fuck, man! I swear, I signed like four hundred pages of documents or some shit. He took it back, sent it back for me, and um. I was officially a UFC fighter. So it was all about sort of Sunday through to Friday cutting weight. Um, it was a massive weight cut. It was it it felt okay all week until Friday when I had to cut what was left. Um, and it was funny because I have my mates cutting weight with me and, you know, they've been doing it their whole life. Like Aaron Blackie, he owns uh, Base Norflex with me now and, and has been working for me for the last three years and he's been everywhere with me and we stayed at the hotel in the in the city and um, I remember him saying to me, um, so I cut some weight that morning um, but before I went and cut weight on the Friday morning with the Saturday morning weigh-in, um, I went and checked the scales. It's like 5.6 kilos to go. And he was like, fuck, man, it's only 5.6 kilos to go. I was like, yeah, but you don't lose seven kilos or six kilos. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you're like, I've already lost a whole heap of water in that initial period. I was like, I'm depleted already. So that 5.6 is not going to come off like it normally does, which is like two or three hours. I mean, it's going to come off over like fucking ages if it comes off. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, true. So we went and cut weight 
I was only there for like an hour, maybe an hour and a half. I lost like 2.8 or something like that, um, three kilos or something. And I uh, had just over two to go. I said, oh, we'll just cruise around the city. We'll relax for a bit. Um, and then we'll uh, we'll start cutting weight at 10 o'clock tonight because a sauna they had organized to be open all night. Um, we had to be on the bus at 7. So I said, we'll start at 10 o'clock tonight. I couldn't go to sleep uh, for whatever reason. Um Probably because it's cutting weight. Uh, and I said, oh, fuck it. We'll just go get in the sauna now. So we went and got in at like 8 o'clock. And it took me from about 7, 30, 8 o'clock, whatever time it was that night until fucking one minute to 7 the next morning. Fuck. Uh, to get 2.2 kilos off. And I had 400 grams to go from about 3 o'clock in the morning till 7. And... Man, it just didn't come off. Like we were doing every trick in the book. Like we were a sauna, we were in a bath, we we're having hot showers, getting back in the bath. I was getting in the bath, getting out for an hour, and trying to sweat. And like I was dry, man. Like, and uh, and it's it's a kind of scary story because I was like five o'clock in the morning. And I was like, I've been awake for sixteen hours. I'm like, I fucking, I've been cutting that whole time. I said, man, I need a doctor. You have to call, like call an ambulance or something. And uh, we can laugh about it now because, you know, it's a thing of the past that happened or whatever we made it. But um, he was like, fuck, bro, don't worry about it. Like, I know first aid. <laughs> like, I was like, I'm fucking dying here, man. Like, and, uh, but, you know, I didn't have the energy. I was just like, okay, no worries. And he said, let's go to sleep for an hour. Let your body have a rest and we'll go sit in the sauna. And we'll just get as close as we can. So, all right, cool. So, I fell asleep under donors in a sauna suit for one hour. Uh, we got up at quarter to six and I literally, we, we went to the sauna and I'm real OCD. Like mm. I'm real like, picky and fussy and pedantic. So I had all my shit lined up. I had to like weigh in and certain stuff and wear certain stuff to the weigh-ins and but everything lined up. So it was real easy. Um, He just took me to the sauna, jumped in. Dan Kelly, obviously judo. You know, legend, been to the Olympics and all that sort of shit. And um, he was in the UFC. He's in the sauna. And I'm just, man, I'm fucked. I was like a ball of like depleted bones, you know what I mean? And and uh, I was laying down in there and Aaron went to get all our stuff ready. And I remember Dan like yelling at his coaches, get me a cup of ice. And no one was listening. I still remember him yelling and he gave me this cup of ice, man. And it was like, it was like your birthday and Christmas all in one. So they cut a hole on the bottom, said, don't eat it, just breathe it. And I was just breathing in this cold air and it was it was a dream. Anyway, this is like the good memories of it. But um, <laughs> about five to seven, we go up. I laid down at the check-in area to go in and I was like, I'm either on or I'm not. I don't know. And Aaron ran up to the hotel room and he said, just wait for me to come back. I checked myself in, stripped off and weighed in and I was fucking bang on weight. So... <sighs> It, it was just like, it, it's like I said, I don't condone it. I, I'm not recommending that people cut that kind of weight or even do weight cuts like that. But, you know, being in the UFC was like a dream come true, mm. you know. And like I said, I'm, I'm, I believe that you're only as good as your word. And if you can't, if you don't have your word, then you've got nothing really, you know what I mean? And um, I said I'd do it and I did it. And, um, you know, I believe there's a part of me that believes that uh, I won that fight, but I lost the decision. Mm. Um there's also a part of me that still to this day, years on, is fucking dirty that he grabbed the cage in the third round while I had his back and he had a switch. 
Um, you know, I've never really admitted that, but I'm filthy about it. I've got the photo in my phone. I look at it all the time and it really just fucking doesn't sit well with me. Um, but, um, you know, even just him being fouled for a deliberate foul, losing a point, like a deliberate game-changing foul, losing a point would have been a draw, you know what I mean? And Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think I won, but, you know, it, it could have been a draw. Or it could have been lots of things, but it wasn't. And um, then we got paid and, um, yeah, and then I, I went on like a two-fight win streak. So I knocked – I had my first full fight camp after that. I got some sponsors on board um, and I uh, had some help from a few people um, and – I took eight weeks off work and um, unpaid and got some sponsors to help me cover, you know, my, my bills and whatnot. And I did my first ever full fight camp without work and we got a dietitian on board for the first time ever. I never even sat in a sauna to make weight the next time. Like yeah. I 74 kilos before I even left, left the country. Yeah. Um, Can I just quickly more, yeah. quickly touch on something, mate? Obviously, you're still in the corrections. Corrective service is still working. <laughs> how, was, how was the mood for the – the crims in there. They're going, fuck, this black kid. Oh, well, look, they don't, they don't really see that stuff, you know, yeah. because it's not super mainstream. Like, it's it's not like it's on the news or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, but surely there was word going around. There's UFC oh, fighter working out the prisons. Without without saying any names, there was a prisoner um, who knew me. Yeah. Uh, very well, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and... You know that you get you get like little questions like, "Oh, are you a fighter?" And I used to just say, "Oh, like, what do you reckon?" And they go, oh, "I reckon you are." And I go, "Well, you don't have to ask me the question." You know what I mean? Like, just leave me alone, kind of thing. And yeah. they, and I sort of like, I would never just openly admit it. I don't want to challenge anyone. I don't want them to be to feel like it's some kind of fucking big note and thing. So I think the best thing to do is be like, "Hey, listen, man, if you know the answer, you don't have to ask me the question. If you don't know the answer, you probably don't need to know it." And, yeah. and that's that's all there is to it, you know. Yeah, I come here, yeah. do my job, I feed you, I let you out of your cell, let you back in your cell, fucking pass you your mail, and and yeah, I go about my business, you go about yours, and all of them were good. Like I never had any dramas, you know what I mean? Um, in fact, some of them we we used to joke back and forth, you know, like I got along with some of them fine. Yeah, I, I never had any dramas in there. No, no one ever cared. Some young guys that asked, I just go and oh, I play football. But yeah. that obviously is bullshit when you hit the UFC. Everyone fucking knows you're in the UFC. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I always worked in Maximum as well. So it's very it's very solitary confinement type isolation stuff. So they don't really, they don't really know, you know. It's, mm. it's mainstream that words get around a lot easier. But when, when you're working in Maximum and that, like people, people sort of don't get that outside world stuff and they get unless they get letters sent to them so yeah yeah look it wasn't too bad man it was it was pretty good yeah so you but get for the most part they don't care what you do for a living or what, what yeah you do exactly as long as you don't fucking piss them off yeah they don't have no reason to, to care i was just thinking they were going to uh, conform a little bit more <laughs> <laughs> obviously do the ufc uh 201 this is where you get your first win in the ufc how was how was the emotions obviously you come off that you know, unanimous decision of that first UFC fight night, pretty pissed off, and then you get your first win. How's that? Just like fucking. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy! Like I said, I had my first full time fight camp. I trained, recovered, slept, eat. You know, um, we didn't have a son at the time, so 
it was just full focus on fighting and cutting weight and everything was perfect, man. I had the perfect camp. Um, I had no injuries, I had a couple of bumps and bruises, but no injuries, no nothing like that. Um, and uh, I flew out nine days early um, and I was over there with, with my mate Ian um, who came over. I didn't have my coaches with me for that one, so I had my mate Ian who was my first ever coach um, and also in the Army as we spoke about yeah, um, yeah. earlier in the potty. Um, and then um, I had uh, Tyson Pedro who's now in the UFC, as everyone knows. Yeah. He, he was in the army at the time. He flew from Sydney over there um, the day before the fight. Um, he was he was my number one corner man. He he was my guy that I I reached out and I said, "Hey, listen, man, like I'm going to the states to fight, and I want you to be there." And and he was there for me, and that's why you know I love those guys. Um, he uh, he went through his own issues to try and get there. Don't worry about that. The army weren't super accommodating to his leave. Um, but he got there for me, you know, and, and and he made it work. And then I had a teammate that had fought previously, like a week's few weeks earlier. He just flew across. Uh, he was still over there. So um having mates over there, wake up was perfect, camp was perfect. Um had a dietitian for the week, so I used an on-site guy to help me with my wake up. Everything was great, man. And then um my my missus was flying over two days before with my dad. And two days prior to flying, she rang me and told me she was pregnant. So I oh, had a baby on the way um, a few days before that, I found out. And then obviously we went out there on the night and got the knockout in the first round, which was which was crazy because uh, I was paying about nine bucks or something for that knockout. So um, I think I had one knockout on my record before that and um, everything else was submissions or decisions. And so it was pretty cool, you know. It wasn't it wasn't just like win by ground and pound and someone like a clean knock them out. And it was it was as good as it gets, man. Yeah, far out, and especially obviously the 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 main fight that night was uh, Woodley and Lawler. So to be fighting under them, fuck, man. man well, just a, Lawler's my favorite fighter of all time. Yeah, right. Man. Yeah, right. And I've never been starstruck with an athlete ever in my life. Yeah, I stood next to him in a set of lights and I shit me jocks, and um, <laughs> couldn't talk to him. So. Um, I had to just tell him, tell his coach when he wasn't around that I, you know, I was a fan or whatever. Other than that, I've never been starstruck. I just say good day to people and keep walking, you know what I mean? But I just wanted to have a conversation. He's so bad, um, and I fuck couldn't couldn't get the word out. Um, <laughs> That's fucking hectic. That's but, hectic. Uh, you know, he's not typically everyone's favorite fighter in terms of like you know greatest of all time and all that sort of shit, but. You know, the way someone can go from an 18-year-old brawler in the UFC and come back as a martial artist, winning by head kick knockouts and, you know, all that sort of shit, I, I feel like he, he really reinvented himself in, into a, a more modern game and came back and become a champion. I thought that was incredible. So I like those kind of stories and the way he carries himself and, and stuff like that. So, um, but, yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. And I think from memory that card had about eight knockouts on it. So yeah. You know, I thought when I got my knockout, I was like, fuck you, yeah, I'm in for a bonus here. Like, I'm going to get – I'm cashing in, baby. Yeah. And then it Even was enough. literally just fucking knockout after knockout after knockout. And I was like, oh, what's like we're going on? Just paid and that's about it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, you've come off a fucking high of a win. Then you back it up again, UFC fight night uh, here in Australia, in Melbourne. And yeah. You, um, you get the split decision. Fuck. Yeah. Um, well, John Cruz, Tuck, I still talk to him now. I actually bring some guys out here for my my cards from Guam. But, um, yeah, look, he's a good guy. He's a little dirty that I 
that I beat him. He thought he won, but um, you know, as they say, two judges disagreed. So um, won a split decision. Uh, but he's got man that that guy's got a hell of a fucking punch on him. Mate. He broke my nose, both orbital walls, um, so both eye sockets, and uh, you know, it was a hard fought win. I broke uh, my nose and my left uh, eye orbital wall in my left eye in the first round. The second round, I snapped the tendons in my wrist. And the third round, I broke the orbital walls in my right eye. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was a crazy fight. You know, I think I convincingly won the fight in most areas uh, as far as, you know, um, submission attempts and then obviously outstruck him on the feet despite being on the back foot. Um, and yeah, we got the win, and my family was there because I was in Melbourne, and I, and I grew up down there in um in Aubrey, and, you know, New South Wales. So, mm. uh, night. Was sort of there. and uh, you know, it was, it was unreal, man. My wife was there; uh, she was pregnant, and yeah. uh, she spent fucking seven hours at the hospital with me that day. We went straight out the back from the cage and straight into an ambulance, and off to the hospital straight into surgery at six o'clock. So. Um, she she stayed with me the whole time, pregnant in the hospital, with nothing but uh the bag she took to the, the event. So, um, good on her, and uh, had surgery and went back and had a feed. Yeah. So at this stage, obviously you're you know you're two for one in the UFC, and your career's you know on a trajectory heading upwards. Uh, you got a few months uh, until the next UFC fight night. Mate, where does it, you know, looking forward, you lose your next three in the UFC. What, what What's going on here? Um, So I had one fight left on my deal. Look, I, I hate it, but it's part of the game. But mm. I saw him with the manager in the States. I thought it was going to do good things for my career. In hindsight, I wish I hadn't. Um, You know, I think what athletes need to understand is that, you know, signing with a manager while you're having success is not necessarily always going to be the best thing to do. Um, managers uh, business owners as you are as an athlete and um, you know everyone loves business when it's good so um, you know I, I saw him with a manager that was quite difficult to deal with he, you know he was a nice enough guy but he was very difficult to deal with he he was almost non-responsive most of the time he, he managed a few big time like a couple of UFC champions and um, you know I feel like you're one of the little guys and, and they tend to sign like a hundred of the little guys, you know what I mean? And a few of you will make it to the big time and that, and, and that's their payday. And as soon as you take a couple of losses that they, they don't really give a fuck about you. Yeah. And, um, it's a shame because I've got a fantastic manager now and um, he's Australian based and, you know, he, he sort of makes you feel like family. Like I get, you know, if I send him a message for something, like he'll, he'll get back to me in, in an hour or so. And it's, it's, um, I used to go weeks on end without a response from my manager. It was a fucking pain in the ass. And so I wish I wish I'd never done that. Um, but I did. And uh and I tried to get a new contract before my contract was up. Um, but the UFC at the time were not re-signing people until they were out of contract. So you had to you had to fight your contract out, then they would decide. And so anyway, they matched me for New Zealand and um I went over there and I seen Sean Shelby, the matchmaker for the UFC, and he said, listen, I know you're stressed out about re-signing. Don't worry about it. We're going to sign you anyway. I said, listen, I don't want to fight for my job. I want to fight because I fucking love it and I want to put a show on for the fans and I don't want to worry about winning and losing. 
even though I want to win. I just want to fight. And he said, don't worry about it. I'll re-sign you. I said, all right, cool. So I went out there and I put on a show. Uh, I think I was winning the first few minutes of that fight and then I got caught with a nasty uppercut and uh, Pachel put me to sleep. Um, it's only the second time in my career I've been knocked out. And, uh, yeah, it was um, it was, it was pretty shitty um, because how do I fought an intelligent, aggressive fight like I had for the first few minutes, um, I, I would have beaten him. Like, there's no way. He was never going to out-wrestle me. He was never mm. going to outstrike me. But he's a power puncher. And, um, you know, I got a little too keen and I tried to put him away towards the end of the first round. I thought he was backing up nicely. I was landing my strikes. And, um, yeah, I just thought that um, – I just thought that – I could put him away and, and my coaches want, you know, they were calling for it. And and that was sort of what we planned. And in hindsight, I wish I just kept doing what I was doing and just, you know, if the decision came, it came. If the knockout came, it came. And that's what I tell my students now, you know, when you got someone hurt, you can go after it. If they're not hurt, just keep doing what you're doing and you win however the wins come. But I got knocked out that night and um, I – I wasn't sure if they're going to re-sign me. So I was off contract. I could have went forward anywhere, I guess. Um, again, I trusted Sean Shelby was a man of his word. He told me he'd re-sign me. Uh, I waited fucking six months for them to re-sign me. And I thought I was never going to get, yeah. I thought I was never going to get another fight, you know. Uh, I didn't want to pester him every fucking every week or anything like that. But, um, you know, I stayed in contact and we got a new contract. Um to fight on UFC Sydney, which was November, I believe. Yeah, 19th of November. Um, so, so I think I waited four months to get the contract, six months between fights pretty much. Um, and they signed me on six weeks' notice for that event to fight Frank Camacho. Um, again, you know, um, yeah, I was two and two. I was coming off a knockout, but I did get re-signed and I went on to lose two split decisions. Um Ironically, I feel like the second one I definitely won and a lot of people feel like I won the Camacho fight. But, um, you know, Frank Camacho was a welterweight, coming down a lightweight. He missed weight by five pounds. And the question will always remain, should I have taken the paycheck and not fought him? Mm. Um, because the UFC offered to pay me if I didn't take the fight because he missed weight by, you know, 2.3 kilos or something. So, um, But instead, I took the fight. And I won fight of the night and I got a, a large sum of money that changed my life because um, it's like winning a fucking scratchy, mm. you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. In comparison, like people scratch a scratchy for 100 grand. Um, I fought Frank Camacho for 100 grand. So it's like it's just it sort of paid off because I got that bonus, um, but I lost. And now I was on a two-fight losing streak. And then like the psychology of fighting for your job starts to play in. Um and I fought again only about 11 weeks later or something, 10 weeks later or whatever yeah, it was yep. uh, against the Korean fella. And, um, you know, uh, I thought I fought a good fight. Uh, we, we went in with a complete game plan to counter-strike because he was a uh, switch between Southpaw and Orthodox and he was very aggressive, come forward type of fighter. Um, that wasn't the type of fight he fought mainly because no I broke his leg with a leg kick in the first round, um, his calf. And um, 
he just never come forward after that and I didn't adapt properly. So it was a real lackluster performance from both of us, really. I felt like I did enough to win, um, but obviously not. Um, so I lost the split decision there. Look, I really thought the UFC would have given me another fight, um, mainly because they'd re-signed me. I'd done a fight of the night against someone that missed weight, um, and the two losses were both split decisions. So they yeah. weren't shit losses. You know, I, I didn't get knocked out again or anything like that. I really thought I was going to get another fight, but um, but I didn't. I got the phone call. Uh, UFC released you. Unfortunately, I got the phone call about six weeks after they fixed my knee because I had knee surgery. UFC paid for all of that, and and then while I was having my rehab, they they released me from my contract. So it's a real shame because um, I felt like I had more to give at that at that stage, and um, I feel like um, with some adjustments that you know I, I would have been good. But hindsight's a wonderful thing, and mm. I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I was provided. I hate that I was two and four in the UFC, but most people don't leave the UFC with a winning record. They leave with a losing record, and that's why that's why they get released. But, um, yeah, just it is what it is. It's the pinnacle of the sport. Everyone wants to be there, and not everyone can win. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Dogs. Mate, fuck, you made it to the UFC. That's the, that's a big thing. Uh, you know, my, my advice for other athletes, but is just to take your time. You know, when you get there, like, I. Oh, I was fucking nagging matchmakers. Like, I wanted to fight all the time. You know, like, I was going to change my life. I was going to mm. make all this money. And, um, you know, I, I wish I'd just, I wish I'd just focused on training and, uh, maybe, like, you know, I never went casual or anything at work. I stayed full time. Like, I wish maybe I went casual and I focused on my training and, and a bit more on my fight career than my paying the bills. But, you know, I was sort of raised to look after your family, so I had to I had to work, and that was just part of who I am. And so I did that. Um, in hindsight, I, I wish I'd maybe just taken a little bit more time and sort of uh, sacrificed a few other, um, you know, niceties, like a, a few other things that I, I would have got that I probably didn't need at the time, so I could focus a bit more on training. And then I would have just waited for the matchmakers to contact me for fights rather than trying to push them. Um, and I might have had a different path, but then maybe I, maybe I wouldn't have. Maybe I, I would have got the same path. Who knows? But, but yeah, I, I think like a lot of fighters are in a rush to to get to the top, and uh, I don't think you need to be. I think you can take your time. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, like, I'll, I'll quickly just talk about that. Obviously, that's one of our questions we asked at the end. But let's just crack on uh, mindset. Obviously, as you said, you you know you probably thought you should have you know gone back to casual and focus more on you know, a, a fight or did more study on a fighter. Do you think mindset is like the priority when it comes to, you know, targeting a fighter? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I was I was all in, man. You know, like even when I worked a 12-hour shift, 14 hours with a round trip, I still came home and trained at night. You know, I trained in the morning before I went to work. I trained at night. Like I still trained. It was just like it, it was like I was fucked basically. Too much, yeah. Well, three or four shifts in a row. Like I wasn't training on the third or fourth shift. I was training on the first two. So it's just like I think from a mindset point of view, like as a fighter, you've got to be you've got to be all in, uh, or as any athlete, you've got to be all in. And and I think um, I was all in, but I was so focused on like what most people are focused on, you know, like working. Uh, my fortnightly income coming in and what bills I've got to pay and my mortgage and, you know, I had a house and everything. And, and uh, 
I, I was always inquiring with work, like, should we go casual? Can I go part-time? And my biggest fear was losing money because mm. uh, I didn't make heaps. But I made enough to pay my bills and, and look after my family, yeah. you know, do nice things. Um, and so I think from a mindset point of view, it was like I was a bit torn between like, okay, like fighting to me was my thing. It, it was never like this is how I was going to support my family. Yeah. But I, I never, ever looked at fighting like, fucking one day I'm going to have as much money as Conor McGregor and my family will never need for anything. That was never that never crossed my mind not once ever, um, and it still hasn't. Fighting has never ever supported me. It's never supported my family. Um, I have invested the money that I made off fighting, and now it supports my family. Yeah, but fighting never supported my family. Yeah, um, and so I think that mindset as it's my thing on the side, I get to fight because that's my thing, and I need to work to pay for my family. I was torn between those two mindsets. And in hindsight, um, I probably needed to look a little bit more like I probably can support my family. Mm. I just need to go without the fancy shit in life that I buy that I probably don't need. Little things like that. Yeah. Yeah, right. And then, you know, when it, when it comes to a manager, did you ha- – sounds like your manager was fucking shit. Now, you know – My manager was a lawyer. Was, you couldn't lean on him pretty, for information. He was a pretty nice guy. Yep. Um. I flew myself to America yep. to have lunch with him, right? I flew all the way to fucking LA. I organized the time to catch up with him before I left. I told him I was coming. It was all planned. I was going over there to watch UFC 214, John Jones versus Daniel Cormier 2. Mm. I wanted to catch up with him that week in LA where he was as well. I wanted to watch the fight and I was going to take my family for a holiday afterwards. So we all went over there for that. He postponed it all week. Then he told me he would meet me at the fights um, and he had a ticket for me anyway. Um, And then so I went to the fights and then he didn't turn up till like fucking seven fights into it. Then he got me in and he said, I'm sitting somewhere else. Here's your seat. So I went and sat somewhere else, which was fine. He said, I'll catch up with you afterwards. After the event, uh, I stood outside the stadium for fucking who knows how long. Uh, try to call him nothing and then I was like I rang my wife I said fuck this I'm sacking this guy on Monday I'm done with him I uh, flew all the way to the States I spent like five grand to get over there mm. stay there all that sort of shit not including the holiday at the end just to go there for like two or three days and uh, and I was like you know it's just to me it just didn't feel right Didn't you just don't fucking do that you know what I mean you got a guy flying across the world oh, exactly right yeah uh, you've been managing him for a bit already, but now he's coming. Like I've actually made, I'd already had a fight under him, but now I've actually made an attempt to go and meet him in person. Anyway, it was just a shit thing to do. So I, um, I was like, "Fuck this, I'm done." Anyway, I'm, I'm getting an Uber. I'll be, I'll be back at the hotel soon. And then he literally walked out the gate at that time. He's like, "Oh, how you going, man?" Like it was nothing. Yeah, like it was nothing. He's like, "Oh, my phone went dead. Sorry, mate. You want to come and party?" And I was just like, fuck this guy. Uh, and I was like, well, mate, like maybe I should go at least try to spend some time. So I went to the after party with like Tia Ortiz and Chris mm. Cyborg and that after she just won the belt. Um, and, you know, it was all right. Um, again, it's it's just all a fucking dog and pony show, mate. You know what I mean? It's just all... It's just shit. 
like I hated it. Um, the after party was cool, drinking beers and, and catching up. And like, I don't hate partying, but like, you know, people, it's just like a lot of empty promises and bullshit, basically. Um, and you can see it, you can see it from a mile away. And, um, unfortunately when I got released, I feel like he didn't fight for me. You know I mean? I, I feel like he could have been like, he could have just given him a little nudge and been like, come on, man, he's, he's signed. He's lost two split decisions. Give him one a shot. This well. He could have just fought for me a little bit. And I've, mm. I've talked to some people since who are managers and that, and they, and they feel the same. They're like, man, I don't know how you got cut. Now I know how I got cut. I didn't perform, but there's other people that have lost three, four, five Yeah, fights. of course, yeah. Um, and, you know, my fights weren't boring except for the last one, which was a little bit um, psychology again. You know, I was probably fighting for my job and I said I'd never do that, but I fucking did. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it's, just a, it's just a funny one. But, you know, managers are necessary, I believe. Um, they yeah, are definitely, your- definitely. Just they find are your the right vehicle one. to your destination. You know, you got athlete, promoter, and the person in between that controls everything is your manager. Promoters don't get you contracts. Promoters don't get you shit. They provide a platform for you to entertain. And depending on which promoter you want to be part of, the manager is your vehicle to get there. So everyone needs a manager. They need a good manager. But um, I definitely recommend shopping around for managers. Um, and looking after yourself as an athlete because you are your own business and one wrong manager can fuck your business. So um, you, you've got to shop around for, for the right thing and, and make sure you get the right person. Um, and, yeah, it's a, it's a funny one, man, because yeah. you know, I was coming up to the end of my contract and I was like, I don't know how to negotiate a contract. Like, I don't like I don't know how to negotiate a contract in Australia. I don't know how to negotiate a 30000 40000 50000 $100,000 contract. You know what I mean? So I was like, fuck, I need a manager. And I, and I kind of just felt like I needed a manager. And yeah. he was recommended to me by my dietitian and um, who was American. And he was like, oh, I took this guy. He's, he's my boy. He'll look after you. Blah, blah. Yeah, he's your boy. All right. But he didn't fucking look after me. So yeah. it is what it is. You know what I mean? I, I, don't, I don't regret it because it was a lesson. And now I have a massive gym. I have athletes and I have connections now to get guys where they want to go. Yeah. And I'll I'll ensure that every single person that fights under me or represents my brand will never, ever, ever make the same mistakes I make. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, valuable advice, I guess, for younger fighters. Now, just back to your fighting, mate, you end up uh, heading over to Japan and fighting three more times. Just give me one sec. Your son, (laughs) get rid of your snake. My son's flicking a snake under the door trying to scare me. <laughs> um, it's, uh, yes, yeah, so three more times. So, as I said, the UFC released me um, off uh, a knee surgery. Um, I had knee surgery in April. I fought in February. Um, and I fought in Ryzen on New Year's Eve. So, it was eight months later, nine, nine months later or something like that. Um, and I was going to fight a little bit earlier against Darren Cruikshank. I think it was like the September or something like that, but it just didn't eventuate, and I was okay with that. Um, but basically, the contract was already in place. It was signed, and it was pushed back. And when it was pushed back, it was pushed back to the Mayweather card against Tension yeah. on New Year's Eve. And um, 
And I was okay with that because I had about a 20-week fight camp and I was a fat shit because I'd just come off surgery. And everyone knows you get fat and depressed and you eat lots of shit you shouldn't eat um, <laughs> and you've had surgery. So um, it, it was good for me. Um, and the best part was I'd come off the UFC loss. I was fighting a guy who had previously been ranked in the UFC um, and it was a huge fight because he was like 9-1 and one or 9-2 and two since the UFC let him go and he was on a firefight win streak all by stoppage and he was he was a rising poster boy man like he was he was as big as it got at lightweight in america yeah uh, sorry, in japan um and i felt like it was i was i was probably a massive underdog if i accepted it and i believed i could win and um so i took it and we got ready for it. I changed gyms in that time as well. Uh, never changed coaches, just changed gyms. I felt like there was a, a little bit of um, uh, synergy and chemistry missing there um, and felt like it was best for me to uh, take a little bit more control and and um, not train in one place but train in multiple places. So I've never changed coaches, had the same coaches. Um they they trained they had their own gyms as well so I trained out of their gyms did my strength conditioning somewhere else had a little bit of everything going on and uh, got myself in prime shape went over there weighed in under seventy kilos for the first time in about eight years uh, which everyone probably doesn't think is too much but one kilo at the bottom end of your weight cut is a fucking whole lot of weight yeah when you're trying to get it off and um, we went out there and, and I said to my coach I was literally standing backstage ready to walk out I said. He's going to fucking shoot on me, coach. I know it. He's going to shoot on me. And um, Steve Compton, my coach, he said, don't worry about it, man. Just Let's just focus on whatever comes at us. Let's just be ready for everything. I was like, yeah, but fuck, I know. Look, he's going to shoot on me for sure. Anyway, we went out there. Man, he nearly knocked me out fucking clean with a spinning back fist. And um, I wobbled off the corner and he started attacking and then, I was able to clinch up and recover from that. But then I pretty much just tried to walk him down and create a bit of pressure because um, he is a real good striker from distance, like a karate-type striker. And, um, yeah, after I got caught with that, I just went back to it, went back walking forwards. And eventually he shot for a takedown, um, which I, I expected him to do. Um, and if you look at all of his tape, um, he shoots his head down, unset up takedowns from distance and – commonly gets caught in a guillotine uh, and he does a headstand cartwheel pass to the opposite side every time. It's his textbook thing, right? He fucks it up, passes, defends the takedown, he's on top. Guillotine's like my thing. And like front chokes are my thing. That's like, you know, I'm, when I got to purple belt, brown belt, you know, and, and your toolbox is getting full and, you, and then you get to brown belt, you start honing in on something. Front chokes and guillotines are my thing. Like, oh, fucking, if I get a hold of the chin, man, I'm, I'm pretty... I'm pretty okay there. I'm confident I can finish any fight with a front choke. Yes. Uh, he shot, and uh, I just knew it was coming. I caught that choke, man. I stuck my leg in the air so he couldn't pass, and fucking three seconds later, he was tapping. All I had to do was stop the pass. So rather than finishing on where I was going to put my legs, I just threw a leg right up in the air so he couldn't pass. And when he landed back down, I set up my angle, and, and uh, it was all over. And, you know, I snapped a three-fight skid um, against – Arguably the biggest stand, uh, the biggest star that Japan had at the time, um, who obviously was out of America and ex UFC. And I put myself on the map and, uh, yeah, 
And then I almost signed with the UFC after that again. Yeah, right. Uh, but at the time, uh, the opponent, which was for UFC Melbourne, was offered me and someone else, and they chose the other person. Um, so you can't control that. You know, I mean, the UFC were interested again. Um, then I won my next fight in April uh, against an undefeated Japanese guy with a wrestling background. Yeah. Um, and I had a chip on my shoulder that night. I believe that I was the test. Um, I was the UFC veteran international star that Ryzen had, and they were testing their young hot prospect. And I'm no one's fucking test. So um, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder, and, and I went into it like that quietly. Um, and he just suplexes everyone, man. This guy just wrestle fucks everyone. And I was like, not me. So, um, yeah, we we went back and forth for three rounds. I got the decision pretty easily. Um, I never got taken down, and I nearly stopped him in the third. Probably just didn't land the follow-up follow up shots clean enough, and he was able to recover. So, um, But, again, another massive win, and then uh, we had a bit of a break. Then I got called up for the Grand Prix, for the Grand Prix, um, tore my meniscus a few weeks out from the fight, but the opportunity was too good to resist. Um, I think the prize money was like over 200K. So mm. I was like, no, I'll do it anyway. Um, and I fought pretty much um, without making uh, – it sounds like excuses. It's not really, man. I, I pretty much couldn't kick. If you watch the fight back, I didn't kick at all. And kicking's like my thing. Um, and in the end, I, I got stopped probably a little bit early, but fair, a fair stoppage nonetheless, I guess. Um and uh, the guy went on to win the Grand Prix, and now he's in Bellator, and he's in Bellator's Grand Prix now as well. So uh, Tofik Masev, he he's a beast, man. Um, and he stopped everyone except for Patricky Pitbull in the final. So um, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty good. But then COVID hit. So yeah, yeah. So that was pretty much the end of your professional record: uh, thirty-two matches, nineteen wins, thirteen losses. It's not the end of it. Yes, yes. Uh, quickly, quickly, quickly touch on that, mate. Break. Quickly. Break. So, um, you know, uh, I really struggled, man. I really struggled, mm. as did everyone in COVID. But I was training every day like I was going to get a fight, you know. Uh, then international travel shut down. Then I was like, fuck, like, surely not. Surely I'll get a fight. And I just kept training. And in hindsight, I, I probably should have used uh, three years to just get better. But, you know, a lot of sparring I probably didn't need to do. Um, a lot of toll on the body I probably didn't need. And all these things just add up over time. And, um, you know, they're like great memories with my teammates. Like I love them. You know what I mean? Like I fucking still spy now. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I never would. But I think if I if I had a if, – if COVID was like a little bit of a known thing, like we sort of knew that like travel wasn't going to happen for three years or something like that, probably would have backed it off a little bit and – uh and tried to develop like a, a different skill set, maybe like working a bit a bit more different shit, whatever that is. Um, but I felt like I was always sort of staying ready for a fight that probably was just not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and after that Grand Prix, sorry, I had a second knee surgery, so the other knee. So oh, shit. Um, I went from the fight back here and like four weeks later I had knee surgery. So um I completely ruptured the meniscus prior to the fight and then straight off had surgery. So um, 
I'd recovered from that and and then you know we were back into it um training 100 like we all thought we were going to fight soon you know none of us thought that fights were going to get cancelled or that fight shows weren't going to happen so we were all sort of training like that and um and uh i feel like i gotta close the chapter you yeah know? yeah i don't feel like i like i've never fought to you know support my family or anything like that um I feel like I need to close the chapter. My son's old enough. He wants to see dad fight in a stadium. You know, I want him to have that experience. Uh, he He's turning six soon and he's seen all my fights. You know, he he knows what I do. He knows what the guys at my gym do. Um, he he loves the fighters at my gym. He goes there every single day at the gym. He spent three hours there today. He, he loves the guys at my gym. He knows what everything's about. He's an intelligent kid and... Uh, that's what he wants and and um you know I want to fight again. So hopefully we can make that happen before everything's over. Uh I don't want to fight locally. There's a whole lot of business and logistical reasons for that and political reasons probably a little bit as well. But I've no interest in fighting in Australia again since I lost my last split decision. Mm. Um I want to go back to Japan. I like their rule set. I like that their fights are scored as a whole, not as a round by round thing. Um and um I like the Japanese culture. Yeah. And more importantly, um, no one's ever made me feel like I'm part of a family yeah. as much as Ryzen has. Um, those guys, J- Japanese people are incredible people. Yeah. Uh, promotion's incredible. I've been, I've been commentating for them for the last 18 months. I've done nearly 20 shows. Um, and I just, I just want to have, you know, I'd like to have two more, but if I can have one more fight and have my family there, yeah, uh, I'll be happy. Is it? Never fight again. I'm okay with that too. Yeah, this, but, uh, are you going to plan for this year or is it a? Yeah, man, I just turned 38. Yeah, I don't want to fight when I'm 40. So, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I, I I feel good. I feel healthy. I won't make 70 kilos again. You know, I always struggle to make it anyway. I'm going to fight a 77. Um, I have a name that I want. I've asked the promotion for it. If the opportunity arises, uh, we'll try and make it happen. And, um, and, uh, you know, if it happens, I'm taking my family and have a holiday. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be, I'm actually, I'm actually planning to go to Japan as well this year for a holiday with the family. So mate, I'm going to try and tie it in. You let's find out what this date's going to be. And I'm in. Well, that's that's the problem, right? They only give you like eight weeks. That's right. I can, I'll, I'll plan eight weeks out. Yeah, sometimes six. So it's like uh, I really want to go. And there's a whole bunch of people at my gym that are like, if you ever fight again, we're coming. Yeah. And I'm like, you guys got to realize, like, I don't get six months' notice. You know, like, you get six to eight weeks' notice for a fight. Oh, that's, and, that's uh, fine with me. I'm fortunate that my gyms are at a point where, you know, we've got enough full time and part time staff for yeah. the place to operate. Um, and I focus on coaching these days and, and, and I sort of I sort of work the rest from the computer wherever I am. So, um, we've got a lot of great coaches at the gym. We've got young guys that have, that have had a couple of fights, but more importantly, they're intelligent young guys yeah. and they understand the program and they implement it. And everyone that trains in my gym knows that it doesn't matter who's on the mat that night. Every single person there is representing me and they're delivering the program that we put in place, me and Aaron. Yeah. And, um, and it's a proven program. Guys win. Um, Guys have been winning fights. We've got guys turning pro in seven weeks. And so I'm I'm content that, you know, my my business can operate 
and I can actually use it now to train as well with some of those guys. So I don't need to be away from my business, which we all know if you've got a business, you're bloody working at 20 hours a day even when you're not there. So um, I, don't, I don't need to worry about that as much anymore. You know, I can train in it so um, you know, we can maximize our time and, and get a camp in now. So COVID's been a blessing in disguise as far as building my business goes. Um, and we're in a really good place now. Uh, and I've got a very good team. I've got great teammates, great coaches, myself um, outside of my gym, and I have fantastic students at my gym who love training with me, who have great skill sets, particularly in certain areas as well. We've got guys that are a pain in the ass to wrestle with that are only blue and purple belts. We've got guys that are a pain in the ass to do jiu-jitsu with, and we have guys that have great striking. So, um, you know, I can get the extras that I used to get. I can get with my team. Yeah. And then I can train with, you know, um, my coach and his team um, during the day. So I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position. Age is not on my side, but I can get a really nice training camp in now. So, yeah. So, yeah, I'm excited. So hopefully, hopefully something pops up. No, awesome, yeah. man. Well, yeah. I'll be fucking pumped for it. We're coming up to that hour mark that we uh, spoke about. Mate, just finally for the last, we had a couple, last couple of questions. We kind of touched on the mindset and all this type of stuff, you know, but just quickly, you know, what advice can you give to people, young fighters, even someone that wants to join the military? You know, what advice can you give to them just to keep on keeping on and, you know, complete those goals they set their minds to? Right, the end goal on the last page and don't fucking look at it until you've turned every other page. That's my best advice. Yeah, right. Fuck, I like that one. The mistake that I've made, you know what I mean? The end goal was the UFC and I forgot to focus on the pages between the front cover and the back cover, you know, and I just kept flicking to the back cover. So that's uh, just made that one up for you too, by the way. I like it. Uh, I I, I think that it's, it's easy to get focused and like tunnel vision on the end goal. Uh, and if you don't focus on each page of the book, then you fuck it up along the way, you know what I mean? And, um, and you miss half the story. So, um, that, that for me, I feel like changed when I said to my wife, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, um, retire if I don't win, you know, the next time I, I lose. And that for me was my moment where I was like, yeah, I need to focus on each page. Every fight, I need to focus on every fight. The end goal will come if it's going to come. And for me, it did. But, up until that point, I was so focused on the UFC, I forgot to focus on each fight, not physically, but just a little bit mentally. Yeah. And um, my best advice, uh, you know, for anyone really, military or athlete, is is to write the write the end goal on the last page and uh, and focus on everything else in between until you get to it, because um, it'll come. You know, it always comes, um, even if it changes. Occasionally, the end goal will come eventually, um, but it won't happen unless you can put in 100% in between. I like it, mate. I like that one. Second question, again, we've kind of touched on it. Uh, what is the plans for the future? Obviously, you want to get one, maybe two more fights in. Outside of that, you're just going to keep expanding the gym and producing some young talent. Yeah, look, um, I uh, for, for personal reasons, I'd like to fight one or two more times. And then outside of that, you know, I'm interested in a bunch of different things at the moment. I like the idea of investing and and uh, in whatever that is, you know, concrete sheds or bricks and mortar or whatever. Um, so, um, you know, I, I want to keep building the gyms. 
Um, I want to provide an environment for people to excel uh, and I want to provide jobs for athletes that don't have to work full-time like I had to. Um, I want the guys that turn pro, if not with me, with someone in our network to have the opportunity to work 20 hours a week and fight full-time if that's what they choose to do. And um, and I want to provide that opportunity for them, um, however that looks, whether that's, you know, work, sponsorship for a gym fees, sponsorship through other companies we know. You know, I, I want to bring that together so as people have just a little bit more opportunity or a little bit more freedom to focus on training um, than I did. And if I can do that, I'll be happy, man. Like at the end of the day, um, I like giving my time to people and if someone else is happy, then I feel like it's been a good day. No, exactly, exactly. And especially, again, for the younger listeners and, you know, anyone who want to get into the fighting or military, you know, gyms like your gym, they're the ones you want to join because you've lived the life. You know the experience. You've got the experience. You've got the wealth of knowledge to pass on down to, the, you know, the younger generation to hopefully not make mistakes or, you know, mindset issues like you you did, which you can, you know, help alter their their end state. Yeah, and, you know, I think I think a lot of people have this drama. And I actually went – I did a, a chat at a business thing uh, end of last year, and I think what a, a lot of people make mistakes is uh, not admitting that you have holes in your, in your game and allowing other people to fill those. So delegating roles and responsibilities outside of your scope of expertise I think is massive and I feel like I can deliver, you know, a business and a training plan and um, an environment for people to excel physically, mentally, healthy, you know what I mean? Um, but I can't do everything. So we've got great coaches that that are better than me in certain areas um, and I'll just pull that shit together. So um yeah you know my future is uh is is building gyms and investing in people and yeah. um and that's what I'm gonna do and and I can't wait till I can um I can spend my days cutting the grass and weeding my gardens and making my palm trees look good um, <laughs> and spending my nights helping uh young athletes become better than what I was yeah yeah nice mate nice and uh final question mate um, you're obviously, you know, a battle-hardened veteran, both in the military and uh, in in the fighting world. What guilty pleasures have you got? Tell us something that people don't know. There's got to be something that people don't know about you. You're you're, um, you're a creep from the t- second battalion, so you've probably got some weird fetish. <laughs> <laughs> um, guilty pleasures. Uh, I like blackjack. Oh, they're all far out. Uh, I learned how to play poker while I was deployed. Yeah, yeah, everyone did. Uh, I like poker, as we spoke about, but uh, I have a soft spot for blackjack and I can't be trusted near casinos. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, um, you know, guilty pleasures. I don't know, man. Um, fuck, I don't do much these days. Eh? I just I train, I sleep. Yeah. Um, that's about it. I don't. That's I don't really do a whole lot. I'm so focused on my on my son, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely. Um, if I was to say guilty pleasure, if I got a trip away from my family, is um, is uh, if it's got if it's got a casino, man, 
I'm, I'm good. I'm good for a pun. Um, Vegas or Reno. Actually, I got a funny story about that. I'll share that with you guys before I finish. So, I was uh, I was in Vegas. Um, I made a I made a deal with my friend Aaron Blackie that if he went to Vegas and tried out for the Ultimate Fighter, that um, I would fly over there to support him for no other fucking reason but just to be there. And um, plus, Taxman hates me, and so I need to spend some money. Yeah. I went to the Performance Institute. I had a business trip. And uh, while I was over there, I, I fucked up. I thought that hiring a Lamborghini in Vegas was like <laughs> 100 bucks, 200 bucks. You know what I mean? So I said to him, they're only like 200 bucks, bro. We'll put 100 bucks each and we'll grab a Lambo, drive around for an hour. It'll be fucking cool. And they weren't 200 bucks, my man. They were, <laughs> they were way more than yeah. that. And uh, so anyway, uh, we rang them up. They were four fifty, but the way everything in America works is you add tax on top, then you add insurance on top, yeah. and it worked like I don't know eleven hundred bucks. Or something yeah. Like that. So, um, I said, I can't afford that, man, and I know you can't either. Um, so, why don't we just take the hundred bucks we both committed to it, <laughs> and um, we'll just put it on black. And so we put the hundred bucks each on black and one, so it was two hundred bucks, and so we turned it into four hundred. I was like, it's only another 50 bucks, I'll pay for it. So we went and hired a Lambo, but when we got there, we realized the tax and the insurance was on top. But I was already committed, so we just paid for it and we drove around uh, for an hour and a half, we drove around because um, there's only half an hour left before we had to have it back. Yeah. So I said, oh, I'll have it for the extra half hour. So we drove around for an hour and a half down the strip in a Lambo and uh, thank you for black. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that was, that was it was kind of funny, but... um. Yeah, I've got a soft spot for blackjack, and if I if I'm ever away from my family and, and I have a little bit of alone time, I, I tend to hit the casino. And yeah, mate, I'm the same. Have a little controlled gamble. Nothing's ever out of control, but have a little controlled gamble. But blackjack's my blackjack's my soft spot. I like numbers. I'm good at math. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah, it's just uh, <laughs> I feel it. I just weirdly feel at peace when I'm having a bit of a play of a card game yeah it's fu- it's funny because i think a lot of it stems back from the military days because it's all we did to play poker we went to the local sports club or whatever and got on the pierce and just hit this you know have a slap on the pokies and well i, gotta admit, I, I feel like i had a little bit of a gambling issue when i came back from overseas you know what <laughs> we I mean? all and, did and, mate cast out digs and i feel like at some point most of us have addressed yeah. that yeah um but not not gambling like i felt like i always had to win money i just enjoyed it yeah you know what i mean like and, and uh and the had money because yeah. I've just been deployed and they didn't tax me, so I had fucking heaps of it. <laughs> I know exactly. So, uh, so um, yeah, anyway, over the years, I've, uh, I've obviously realized that I work hard for my money and whatever I'm going to indulge in needs to be controlled. Um, so I set myself a little limit and um, I go and have a pun on blackjack and occasionally play a little bit of poker. Um, outside of that, man, I spend my life working and when I'm not working, I'm spending time with my son. Yeah, nice. Uh, my wife, obviously, but uh, I'm a dad, and that's and that's my responsibility. So I don't I don't have too many guilty pleasures these days. Um, sneak sneak the old chocolate bar in, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, no, sweet mate, sweet mate. It's uh, it's been a really good chat with you, mate. Um, again, coming from that young dig, and all the way through up until you know the UFC. Not even that fighting under you know uh, Lawler and Woodley and Floyd Mayweather in bloody in Japan. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's that's awesome exhibition fight. Oh, it's incredible, man. And then like I called his last fight in Japan on the on Did the you? mic. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's I've had an incredible career, man. I'm very fortunate. I'm very grateful, and uh, I don't feel like I owe it all to myself, but I owe it to those people who helped me get there. So. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. of course. Now, if people want to reach out to you, they can head to your Instagram, which is beatdown one five five. Yep. So that's the handle for Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Twitter as well. Yep. Gotcha. I've got the same one. Yep. Um, if it's professional, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. You can jump on our, our our website for our promotion or our gym as well. Yep. The gym is Base Training Center, all one word for Instagram. Base-training.com.au yep. or at Base Training Center for Instagram. Yep. Uh, at Beatdown Promos for our fight show. Yeah, we'll get out there. Definitely if you think. There's a whole lot of stuff going on, man. Yeah. I could go on for days with the stuff to share me. But if you want to reach out, at Beatdown155, catch me. My DMs are always open. I like talking to people. And uh, I own a coffee shop. So if you want to drink coffee, I'm your man. <laughs> Mate, again, appreciate you giving me your time and uh, sharing your story. I'm pumped to get this one out to all our listeners. You know, majority of our listeners are military, police, fireys, and ambos. So, Mate, this will definitely uh, strike a chord, I think, with uh, well, a lot of them. Who knows? It might be some young dig out there who wants to become a fighter. So, you, you know, well, maybe be able to we get do a, We do a 20% discount at all base training centers for anyone that's uh, military, police, fire, ambulance, or corrections. Yeah, nice, mate. That's awesome. That's awesome. Again, mate, thank you and let's stay in contact. For sure, man. Thanks for that. Appreciate it. Too easy, dude. Catch ya. See you, man. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour-over filter bags, got some merchandise, and just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our bio, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So again, jump onto 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.